Hi guys, Aramethius here. Just a note to say that we realised after recording there were some slight issues with my audio track and it went a bit quieter. I've tried to fix that in post and hopefully the disruption to the sound is minimal, but apologies in advance for any audio weirdness that comes through on my side during this recording. Thanks and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny. This is the comprehensive guide podcast to all places and plots exalted. I'm your host, Aramithius. And I'm your co-host, Rails. And today we are talking about lunars, the beasties and things that go bump in the night if you're the realm, or the chosen of the moon, or the savage man-beasts who will elevate you into another form of humanity altogether. Many, many subriquets, which I think is sort of appropriate, given that they are also shapeshifters, tricksters, and whatever other labels you want to slap on from that sort of corner of mythology. Fun time with all the shapeshifting mm. theories. <laughs> well, something like that. We should probably start off with a few things and disclaimers from the last episode, actually, before we get to all that. Uh, there were a few things that I've managed to notice that we that we slipped up on. I managed to completely get my Greek mythology um, wrong, misconstruing the role of Patroclus in the Iliad and what he made Achilles do. It wasn't that when he died, Achilles went and sulked. It was Achilles didn't want to fight and stayed in his tent because Agamemnon was trying desperately to do things to Achilles' wife, and it was the murder of Patroclus that brought Achilles out of his sulking and into a murderous rampage. So my apologies to all of those classicists out there who probably screamed at our last episode that something was going wrong. And also, one of the things that we did miss out fairly that was fairly substantial with the Solars was Eclipse Charms. Did we just want to give a quick explanation for what that what those are before we kick off, just so that we get completeness? The one-sentence explanation is basically Eclipse casts can steal charms from what would be the monster manual if Exalted ever had a good one. Charms are sometimes listed as Eclipse, and that means that by learning them, or by using other Eclipse charms, or by just generally having a fun old time, Eclipse cast solars can take them, even though they are supposed to be charms for monsters, or sometimes other Exalts. I don't know if Third has had other Exalts get Eclipse charms. I know Second did. I've not noticed any so far, but then again, um, I kind of see charms and my eyesight goes very blurry and I tend to glaze after a certain amount of time. But yeah, it's basically allowing the eclipses to, for to perform the role of ambassador that little bit more. It's kind of the perks of living in a foreign land, so to speak. It's yet another reason that every single character archetype can be an eclipse cast because they can have <laughs> yes. a much wider charm library than anyone else. Yes, as well as potentially even stealing char um, stealing charms from gods, as it turns out, because you can get spirit charms as well as part of that whole deal. And I think with that, the bull. Uh, we yep, the bull. Yep, we forgot fair the bull. <laughs> we did forget. We did forget the bull until we dropped the storyteller screen down. And in terms of the flavour, the bull of the north is basically the example of everything that you can do as a solar, or many things you can do as a solar. He basically curb stomped an entire realm legion by causing a bunch of tribes in the north to unite it was seven years after the the scont and it's is it literally ground zero for for the settings year 
Um, Ground Zero is seven. Uh, no, Tepe is already. It's not in complete chaos. It's been humiliated mm. and things. So day zero for the for the setting is seven years, seven or so years post Scarlet Empress. Uh, the Bull of the North went up against one of the most storied military great houses of the Dragon Blooded and totally decimated their legions. He absolutely wiped the floor with them, and so. But after that, he more or less stopped. He was supposedly coming south and sweeping a whole bunch of cities up in his wake. But um, he's more or less stopped um, after Tepet smacked, uh, or he smacked Tepet. And he's, uh, he and in previous editions, um, several of his circle are good examples of what solar warlords can achieve. And... In some ways, it can be something for you to hook your um, hook characters up with. Say, do you, everyone's heard of the Bull of the North. You can travel to find him, get guidance from him, that sort of thing, or potentially oppose him, um, depending on what your story arc is. Yeah, and it's also a very sort of relevant thing for your your freshly exalted solar to think of themselves in terms of. Yes. Yeah, some something that's not just all stories of um the, of the immaculates telling stories about how you're the great bogeyman of um of the of their faith and something dreadful. You've got a big example of a recent solar who's managed to accrue a good amount of power, and you can see what they can do. Yeah. Still, that aside, and the precedent of uh, of apologies for all the things we messed up last time set. <laughs> Yes, if you one final thing before we do that before we get to Lunas, if you do notice that we miss anything or want us to cover anything in particular in future episodes, do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. We will get to those pointers and read things out on the show, that sort of thing. So please do let us know in short if we miss anything like this, because we've got we've got access to virt- virtually all the books but we may well be missing some things so if we do please jump up and down and shout and send us angry letters we've, we've got access to all the books but not access to infinite time to read them all <laughs> yes would be nice anyway so let's get to, let's get to luna shall we indeedy uh lunas as mentioned in the intro are chosen of luna the moon goddess and goddess of Lots of things, as most of the Incarnate are. One of the nicknames that they give her definitely a lot in second edition is they refer to her as the Fickle Lady, and that is probably one of the best ways of describing her domain as much as it is describing her. <laughs> she kind of does a bit of everything. She's a trickster mm. goddess, she's a uh, goddess of not nature per se, but wild with an eye. She's a goddess of fertility sometimes, sometimes she's of travel, uh, and she's also of the of pretty much all the gods in second edition, at least she's the closest to the wild with a Y. Yes, that's kind of one thing that we'll touch on a bit later, but um, Luna is one of those gods that represents sort of change and, cha- and chaos and unpredictability. That's kind of the central thing about her as far as general thematics are concerned. It also means that um, she has the ability to appear as a lot of different things. Shape-changing is absolutely in her wheelhouse, as and when she's um, deigning to involve herself with creation. But And frankly, 
I think at this point is the is the area where we do have to open the biggest kettle of worms where we're dealing with Lunas, because one of the other things that Luna is frequently uh, given as a goddess of is Quoth 2nd Edition, and even to some degree 3rd uses similar termings, that she is the that she is the goddess, the patron goddess of many uh many savage cultures and barbarian groups. Yeah, we are using a high amount of inverted commas there. Third edition has kind of turned against this in a, um, a fair bit because as much as first first edition was essentially uh, that the Lunars were involved with barbarian tribes and now you need to think about things like taboos, like stepping on people's shadows and a whole host of very stereotypical stuff about people who live people who live in jungles and are cannibals and all this that and the other second plays it a bit more straight of just it's the geographic threshold which the realm sees as the backwaters because it's not the realm uh though the fact that lunas can just turn into a bear and eat you lends a certain proclivity to violence amongst the we'll get to it later second edition basically has the lunas run a conspiracy of loads of tribes Yes, there was the kind of the, the, the kind of tribal confederation thing that was quite a vibe in in second edition, but third third doesn't really have that, and third explicitly says that with um has has a sidebar it's saying barbarians is just the word the word that that certain groups of people use for terms that mean not us and then attach bad pejorative things to that sort of phrasing, and so while. Um, while Lunas do buy into quite a lot of the kind of tribal jungle dwelling uh, archetypes of vast amounts of fiction, um, we'll try our best to avoid those those sorts of terms. Um, can't guarantee absolute success because it's an annoyingly good shorthand for some of the things that are trying to be um, be um, portrayed here. And equally, the canon itself is littered with it. Like even yeah. third, which tries to walk away, does also have to just fall back on it at several occasions. Although hilariously, third solution to let's try and tone down the uh, barbarian angle is just by making the lunas breed more, which is a whole other problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So with that said, and caveats out of the way, I think we should probably get to the lunar exalted themselves. Yes. And what sort of themes they work with? You've already got a sort of a taster here. Um, for what sort of things that they are most likely to come across. Uh, but Lunas are a bit more kind of... Where, where, soul, where say, Solars are very much governance by a righteous ruler and everything that that means, kind of shining glory and so on. Uh, Lunas are a bit more laid back. While, um, while Solars may be your god kings... Lunars can absolutely be your gods. Um, god ki- um, kings and tr- um, isn't really a thing. Um, chieftains and people who lead confederations and there's generally a bit more of a vibe of ruling by consent rather than by decree um, in how the Lunars seem to operate. They're, they're a step down in power as well as, or a step down in 
from from how in your face their rulership is. Um, so that sort of lends you to a whole bunch of different themes of negotiation and being part of being a part of society rather than rising above it. There's also bits about the lunar exaltation that means that well, we've we've already said they're shapeshifters, but various other things that means that lunars are a lot more monstrous. Yes. The shapeshifting, as we sort of mentioned. That will be a big draw in most people for deciding I want to play a Luna because shapeshifting is cool and it's their most visible, for use of a better term, gimmick power. Because other than the Solas, every Exalt Splat does have a gimmick that is what you, as a storyteller, introducing a new person to it can just say, in a nutshell, these are the ones who do this. Solas, they don't really have that because they're the default, but the Lunas, they're the ones who shapeshift. And so that will factor in... There are ways to play Lunas that don't focus on shapeshifting, but you're kind of nobbling yourself. Yes, because there's an awful lot of their charm sets that revolve around ways to shapeshift and things that are enhanced by shapeshifting and so on. On the final kind of thematic point, um, guerrilla warfare and asymmetric warfare and the long fight um, are things that kind of key in. So they are... As we'll see when we get to their history, they are pitched against the realm quite aggressively um, in in how they're put across. And so if you want to run games that are about people running hit and run, playing the underdog, playing sabotage roles, um, agents provocateur, that sort of stuff, that's all very much in the Lunar's wheelhouse as well. Yeah, the um, and equally, they're very much against the realm. The other sort of thing with them that does come up a lot is their relation to humans as compared to solars. Like, as we've already sort of mentioned, they tend to, I think, adopt is the best word we should use. Tribes. Yes. Sometimes they're born into them. Like, Luna will... We'll get to how the Lunar Exaltation happens, because Lunas suffer a lot from changing massively between editions. But... Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're born into them. Sometimes a Luna will just turn up to a tribe and decide, okay, I'm going to help you now. Uh, like Good Marrow Eater, one of many wonderful <laughs> exalted names who did that for the Haslanti. They are a lot closer to humans than... I'd argue pretty much any other exalt type save alchemicals. Because Dragon Bloods always put themselves distinctly above it. Solars are god kings by nature. Uh, I would potentially argue that. Well, it, it, I think it depends on the Dragon Blooded for the. Um, but it's certain, certainly the realm. The realm focuses yeah. a lot on hierarchy, um, whereas Lunas are always of the people in a way that realm dragon blooded are not yeah um because because the realm deals with a lot of themes about without going into stuff uh, bits about what the realm is the realm in short is creation's largest empire that has a very very hierarchical structure slaves the whole um tribute from tribute from the colonies so to speak in the in the threshold or satrapies is the term that gets used and there's a lot. There's a lot of ways that the the dragon blood and the ruling class of the realm distance themselves from the people that they rule. The l- lunars categorically do not have that. Yeah, it's the it's basically the shorthand of me saying you making a lunar character. If you're writing backstory, you can actually have your human friends, and they're probably still hanging around with you. 
Depending on how old your Luna is, but yes. Yeah. Well, if, you, if you're a very old Luna, you've just got new human friends. I can only really think of one or two major Lunas who make a habit of being alone. Yes, that's true. And one of them's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We will, yeah, we'll get to that. I think we should probably get to. I think we should probably get to talking about the the nature of the nature of lunas now that we, now that we've kind of talked around the kind of the general thematics. Yeah. If we go into the bits and pieces of the lunar exaltation, and um, we said already that they um, they are the cho- the chosen of Luna. They are um, in contrast to the unconquered sun, who is removed from most of his exaltations, apart from. Zeniths to a degree. Luna personally attends every single exaltation of one of her chosen. Um, the third, at least, presents this as quite a quite a religious experience sort of thing that Luna will t- um, will take the form of someone or something that um, that meet that will eventually mean something to the future exalt um, and kind of guide them through the process it's- almost. The line is, if I recall correctly, the line is something like, Luna appears as what they need most at that time. Because they get the lovely little analogy of, if she exalts, if she exalts a, a child who's had their parents killed by the realm, which is something that Luna 100% would do, she appears as a lovely yep. maternal sort of figure. Whereas if she's coming to someone who's just angry, she'll appear as a... Uh, I say big scary dude, there have been times she's appeared as just a crocodile and she will just fight you so you can get your rage out and get your superpowers. It's one of one of the memes that I've seen somewhere floating around is that Luna is the goddess with the amazing superpowers to shapeshift into everything but a straight guy. <laughs> yes. Pretty much tracks. <laughs> um, um, yeah, that that that's absolute meme fodder. But um but that's very true. That's that's another thing about in kind of broader thematics, just before we get too far away from that. There's a lot of things about shape-shifting and consequently a lot about identity that goes into Lunas. And so they're very, very keen to emphasise points where alternative identities and everything that that means can be explored, including various transgender identities and so on. That is the key thing. Luna does... uh... She doesn't just give you shape-shifting. The lunar exaltation is inherently mutagenic. It changes... It can change, I should rather say. Uh, Your use better in baseline human form as well. Uh, how it does this changes from lunar to lunar, but third edition outright does sort of say that if you are a person who is transgender, lunar comes down, zaps you with the moon juice, and bam, you are now your gender in terms of biology as well as in terms of uh, identity. Yeah, I'm not sure quite how strongly that's come across in previous editions. I didn't really notice it quite so much. Second played along a different line with it. Mm. Second played along the line of she basically lets you self-actualize because second really played in the thing of um, more on the, well, on the uh, side that, say, if it was someone who uh, had a, dreams of being a warrior or whatever, but was kept in school or for marriage fodder in the realm or what have you, then Luna comes down, zaps them with the moon juice, and they become a hulking Adonis. <laughs> and it's that sort of yeah. thing. It's... Right. Of the incarnate, I'm going to say it outright, of the incarnate, Luna's the only one that you can maybe consider nice. Not good. She does some horrible things, but she's the only one that's nice. Yes. And... Um... 
Yeah, I, she's the she's the only one that I can really kind of see as having friends. Yes, and she very much does. Um, yes, it's because the other thing that third is light on, second is heavier on. It's not just the exaltation she attends to. Luna is one of the incarnate that you can pray to, especially if you're a Luna, but sometimes for even just other people, and she might actually listen. Yeah, which is a rare thing for that tier of gods, because they're not really known to do much to. Um, to come down from their pleasure dome in, in Yushan, in heaven. Luna and the Lunas, by design, has an, have an interesting relation with, with... It might as well get into the point of how they relate to Solas now, because that's a mm-hmm. really key yeah. theme. But this applies to quite a few other exalt types as well. We'll start with the Solas, though, because it's the obvious one. The, the Solas and the Lunas are bonded. Um... So, well, most are. Again, yes. you'll be hearing this a lot in this episode if you haven't realised already, but Lunas have changed a lot between editions. Um, third edition was quite is quite heavily on, on the hashtag not all Lunas <laughs> in this regard. Um, you can make them in pr- um, to be pretty much what, whatever you will, but I, I'm sure that second was saying that um, went along the lines of most but not all. Second went along the line of We'll explain what the lunar bond is first, mm. then I'll see yes. what second happened. Uh, can you guess? Can you guess which side our separate readings in this one went? <laughs> but yeah, the so the the solar and lunar bond is a thing that some lunars have to some solars, um, where because of history reasons that we'll get into in the history, and because of Luna being a dick, which is a recurring theme with her. Yep. Every lunar and every solar has exactly one, not every, most, one of the other exalt type that is uh, that is soul-bonded to them. The term that they officially use is soulmate, but they, every edition is very explicit on this is not always, and in fact in the majority of cases, isn't romantic. It is primarily a magical bond uh, that, well, mechanically, it creates an intimacy. Um, it basically just, you see that person, you're like, yeah, there's something something about them. Not even necessarily romantic, just that's an interesting person. Um, it also comes with the magical caveat of the Luna is physically incapable of harming their uh, their mate. This is fluff, never mechanics. Because hmm. the idea was, I was, as we said to history, it was to stop a civil war, Luna made a loophole. Yes. The bond is basically there, if uh, basically the idea of they they want to kind of play on the interplay between solars and lunars, uh, it, and so the the bond is there to enforce um, to enforce that on um, on some level, making them uh, making different pairs of solar and lunar exalted uh, join together um, in. Um, in in a mystical sense, in in mechanically, um, in in third edition, uh, that means that um, the lunar will always have um, an intimacy towards the solar to which they are bonded of some type. It doesn't specify. Um, I mean, the immediate go-to is, and the thought is, well, if the, if they're bonded for life, they're soulmates. It's love. No, it's absolutely not that. Given how intimacies work in third. You could have it be hate. Yes. Unconquered Sun and Luna has said that you two are just not getting along. That's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that. It's not even that the 
and that the intimacies are decreed from on high. How the Bond mates feel about each other is entirely dependent on how they relate to each other. But that link will always be there. And the key, the other key point of it, and one of the few things that Third did keep about it, the Bond, like so much, changed quite a lot between editions because it had some interesting implications if you think too hard about it. But the one thing that Third did keep, it's uneven. It is more of a tie for the lunar than it is for the solar. And that was by design, and that does tie mm. to the history, because the Unconquered Sun doesn't yep. like it when people don't say he's in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's not something I would recommend emphasizing too much. But um, if you want to start, if you want to start exploring power dynamics, then absolutely go for it. I was going to say but, the, the way that I I can think of, and it will be on the other side of the storyteller screen. There is one situation where I would hardly recommend it actually becomes a factor. Absolutely, um, and on the and on the mechanical side, there are certain charms that key off um, that key off the bond. Um, most of these are lunar charms, but there is the occasional solar one in there as well. To hop back two tangents ago, I did say I say what second yep. did with it. Third says some, but not <laughs> all have it. Second said all had it when it was made, but it leaned much harder into nowhere near all of the solars are back yet. So your lunar probably just their one does not exist at current. Right. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, I'll argue that's that's a nicer way, given how the history says it's supposed to work. Yeah, and I can't I can't remember how it was done in first, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was closer to the third implementation. Um, I wouldn't know if first even had it, because yeah. first played... Do we do edition wars now? <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> this is the problem of we're going to keep referencing it, so I kind of feel we have to. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go. Let's go. Let's go through that. <laughs> insofar as insofar as we need to. Yeah. Uh, so exalted yep. has three editions, with and just to open up in the nicest possible way, mechanically all of them are bad. Yeah, they've 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 all been fairly substantial overhauls of the other, both in terms of mechanics and in flavor in certain directions. And every time it's um, needed. Mm-hmm. Because. I don't know enough about first mechanics to criticise it, but if second was how they fixed it, it must have been bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of the thematics, which is a bit more what we're, what what we're, we're focusing for, yes. on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, for first edition was was when they had the idea that Exalted was the pre-reality to the world of darkness. And so the overarching thing was that the world is failing and fading. And so rage against the dying of the light. And moreover, the hilarious implication, uh, which storytellers, I heartily recommend all of you take on this insane theory that creation will eventually turn into modern day Earth. <laughs> To go on to a tangent of a tangent of a tangent, you can fix that. Um, <laughs> um, just okay. Before before we lose everyone in the weeds. Mm. Um, back to back to the I point. Think, edition wars. Tone. Yeah. First edition. Rage against the dying of the light. Second edition. Concentrated nineties edge. <laughs> well, um, I think that was as much the marketing as it was the game because they were. I do remember hearing a story somewhere. Um, that when they sold copy, um, copies of second edition, when they launched it, um, and they had kind of little pop-up booths um, across the states, they were they were actively giving people graduation certificates, <laughs> saying, "Well done, you've now gone on to 
playing an adult role-playing game now. Oh, God. Yeah. By and large, the blanket, the blanket thing, if someone says there's a problematic or otherwise kind of what-the-hell-were-you-thinking aspect of Exalted Law, you can put good money on it came from second. Yeah, they were trying to go with... Ex- they, they were trying to go with extremes of things, or what we now think of as, as extremes of things. Um, it's... Generally, to put ideas out there, yeah. they've um, Exalted has been on the kind of the leading leading edge and transgressive in its way uh, for as um, yeah. for as long as it's been around. Quite what that means and how that's presented has changed over time, which means that an awful lot of the presentations in say um, in second edition particularly are now quite problematic simply because they were they were putting ideas out there for the first time and or for among some of the first times within the role-playing space but that still meant that they'd lent quite heavily on stereotypes and presentations that don't quite give a full picture as we understand it at the moment equally to be the dirty second apologist that i am it did many things in the other direction as well like, a lot of things that it did now, when you realise that they did it in, what, 2001, second edition came out? No, three? Yeah, something like that. Early 2000s. When you realise some of the stuff that they did in the early 2000s, to tie it back to the theme of Luna, she is quite a lot of it. It's really quite impressive how, to use a better term, ahead of their time and progressive they were. One of the aspects of Luna is a pregnant man. Yes. There's a whole host of images that are playing around with ideas that... For the time, would not even be would not even yeah. be considered um, about outside of things. But then again, you do wind up with things like second edition Infernals. The, yeah, I was going to say the second edition presentation of Raxi to keep it in uh, yeah. um, in she, in lunar context. She ate babies because uh, <laughs> yes, this 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 is a lunar who presents physically as a mid years teenager. Um, who is centuries old and eats babies because she can. That that has changed in third edition. When we get to talking about Raxi, we'll go into a bit more detail. But I think that I think that's enough for now to show yes. that things things swing wildly yeah. and third, <laughs> between editions. Third in, is the most in exalted. Normal exalted has been for use of a better term. That has its upsides and that has its downs. Yeah, it's. It's now, you can at least try to talk about Exalted to people who don't know about it in the paradigm of third without sounding like a psychopath. But there are some there are some fans who will say that that is taking away from it. Yep. But anyway, Luna's changed a lot between them, and the long and short is, first edition, they were pretty much entirely villainous until they became playable. Yes. The second edition, they are hilarious um, and i can go into more because it's the history that really gets interesting with them there and third edition they're a lot more flexible you can they're focusing a lot more on you can do whatever you want with your character as a lunar yes and although there are kind of again there's an emphasis on the on the thematics to get back to the idea of lunar exaltation and um, we talked about essence fever last time as a thing that seizes newly exalted people um, with with wow, I have the power to do stuff now, and with Solas, that kind of ambition and drive to 
to change with Lunas, that is rage, typically. They are, I mean, this kind of ties into um, the kind of the shape-shifting thematics of Lunas as werewolves at some point in their conceptualization, or at least that's one of their core themes. Uh, but they, but you, um, the lunar exaltation brings rage in whatever form that means. That's generally speaking, that's rage against injustice, rage against the machine, sort of thing. Lunas are angry, um, angry about elves. <laughs> we'll we'll get to that. Uh, angry about dragons? Would you prefer? <laughs> that's how they often manifest. Although, yes, well, it's not uh, how they were designed. No, but well, the the rage of of the essence fever is all consuming. There are examples of lunar characters that were fantastically peaceful individuals and very, 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 very chill, approaching the way you can think of, say, Buddhism and Zen, kind of approaching enlightenment, and then they exalt as a lunar, and it shatters how they understand themselves because the essence fever will always bring rage. It will always bring that impulse to change the systems in which someone finds themselves. Yeah, the the nature of the lunar exaltation is change, fundamentally. It's like, we say it brings rage. Third edition leans a lot more heavily into that. Older ones, they do say it often manifests as anger, but that's mostly because... The Age of Sorrows, i.e. the time the game is set, is not a pleasant place, and being angry at it is quite a normal response. Yeah, it's very easy to do. <laughs> it does say that there are other other drives it pushes you towards, because it is, it is fundamentally the desire of things should be different now. Whether that manifests as anger, or whether that manifests as, in some cases, like one of the best ways for making a lunar sorcerer or necromancer, um, is basically having this drive as curiosity of things should be different, but how? That's how you can make quite a cerebral lunar. Yes. With that, I think we do have to get to attributes versus uh, versus abilities because they actually reflect this mechanically. Well, I'm 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 gonna I'm going to say that we haven't talked about spirit shapes yet before we bring you onto that. Oh, we haven't. Yes, we haven't. We haven't. Right. This is another thing that they've taken a term that some people may have. Uh, baggage for because it is also used in actual cultures but in brief you have an animal that well you the player design and say this is the one that i want my guy to be the best at shapeshifting into um but that is resonant to your character that can be culturally that can be personally that can be uh, that can even be at least in second again luna decided you're turning into that you have to figure out what that means (laughs) Yes, it well, it, it it all depends on what you want the narrative for your character to be. I think, um, because if you want it to be a journey of self discovery, then absolutely, it's kind. Um, you can have that. Why on earth is my spirit shape a cup? <laughs> and then you can work out why and kind of plan out how your journey of thinking why why this shape. What does that mean for your character? Um, equally, on the other side of it. It can it plays into it plays into certain mechanical things that they have with them certain charms. So you can also think, well, what's the expression of my character as they are or as I want to play them, sort of thing. So you want do you you want to play a, you want to play an intelligent hunter? A wolf is 
probably the go-to, the er example or go-to example of that sort of, um, of that sort of a predator, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and Aluna has at least three shapes. They have their spirit shape, which is that animal we just discussed. They have the the human one, which is you as a person, and then the war form. Uh, the war form being a hybrid of the two, almost. Angry fursona. Yes. <laughs> it tends it tends to look like a wear thing. It's like your spirit shape being a wolf means that you will be on all fours with snout and a tail and all that. Whereas if your war form is a wolf, it's more likely to be on two legs, uh, jacked like a space marine, ripping doors open. Yes. All of these things don't necessarily have to be animals that uh these better actually exist. Creation's got a lot of biodiversity. Yes. And one other thing to say as well that we've kind of touched on, but it also changes their their pre-existing mortal form when you when yes. you exalt. Um you become the um the idea of what of what you should be. Um I don't know whether whether that means you ever wind up with a Luna with something we would consider a disability or not but this probably comes down to player choice again yeah absolutely absolutely and it's it is it's why again i quite like how second did it versus versus third because there's a lot more explicit with yes look it can it can do this for your identity and like for a second just went with a straight you self-actualize whatever you see yourself as regardless of how you've ended up that's mm. what you get so if you happen to see yourself as like they said a disability being a fundamental part of your identity yeah, okay, that stays when you get when you get the moon juice. Mm-hmm. Whereas if if to that if to that character it was something that they would either rather rather not have or that they just don't see as completely essential to them. Well, okay, moon juice. Now you're back. And it can also produce whatever variety. If you want to play a particular um, non-binary character in whatever form that may take, um, that will also results in as part of the transformation into an and into your i i want to say i keep on wanting to say idealized mortal form but i'm not sure it's is it yeah, quite it's, that it's ac- it's actualized more than anything at least at least yeah. from second again it's more because i know third sem- third implies a lot more control on the individual's part over how it turns out whereas second mm-hmm. is just like no it happens and oh yes this like you know oh yes this is right but you didn't have a moment of deciding how that goes yeah i'm i'm just trying to work out whether we get a couch potato who suddenly um suddenly becomes someone who is just a chiseled adonis depends on how they saw themselves one would imagine i suppose they, uh, although equally the way exalted works could still look like a couch potato and just now be able to chuck mountains that's true because that <laughs> is an archetype that yes. everything exalted draws from loves yes <laughs> yes, that absolutely makes sense. Okay, I think that's enough about the exaltation, unless there's anything else we can particularly cover. Oh, the tangents. <laughs> yep. The one thing that I would say is they are... No, this can actually go in history. No, we'll move on to save save on the tangents. Okay, and yeah, just a, a slight note that lunar exaltations, like solar exaltations, reincarnate. This particularly comes into play with the regards to the solar and lunar bond, because that bond persists across exaltations. Yeah. But you will also have the same things of potentially getting memories, flashbacks, dreams from previous incarnations. 
and that sort of thing. One can argue, given the uh, spoilers, Lunas have a social structure uh, that it's more likely that you'll be able to figure out what you did before. Yes, there was actually a, um, one of the um, example signature characters in the th- in the third edition core. I don't know if she persists in other ones, but it's she who remembers. Signatures are different every edition. Um, it, oh, it's not a signature. It's just a. Um, it's just a character, but um, she who remembers is the Super K, and mm. she was basically got, gets taken over by the personality and memories of the previous exaltation, who was a first age scholar and archivist and record keeper, and she's constantly was this remembering. Was also a sorcerer? Because yes. didn't they imply that it was magically done? Yeah. Yes. Now I remember that one because that's. One of the rare cases of third doing something that's really ethically dubious. Yes, because well, it, I can't, I can't, I can't remember whether it's something that's necessarily done to her. But that character gives huge questions about the identity of the character. Is that how how far is she now the th- the person that she was versus the person that the spark carries versus something else altogether, and how does that work? And it's worse for Lunas than it is for Solas because Lunas can shapeshift. Yes, you you have a you will wind up with a looser sense of self as a Lunar um, over t- over time. Several of the the older characters will spend time in a variety of different shapes and not necessarily be attached to any particular one. Uh, it doesn't actually lean too heavily into the idea of. Um, a beast, a beast you are, so a beast you become, um, sort of thing. I mean, Le- Le- Leviathan spending centuries as as a whale, um, as as it was implied. It's not that he's become a whale in how he thinks, but no, he's still a cantankerous old man. <laughs> yes, he just happens to also be a fish. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of now you think like your shape if because that is one archetype that comes up in other types of fantasy particularly disc disc world and werewolf the thing that they were yeah taken from parallel to something in that area if it existed Mm -hmm. in first edition it was supposed to be parallel to something in the world of darkness yeah and lunas and werewolves yeah, there isn't any of that sort of mind alteration as part of the lunar process. Mostly, mostly <laughs> kind of mind bending, but it's Beast not. Rela- it's not. Them. It's not related to you spend a long time as a deer, you'll start thinking like a deer. No, it's more to do with the shape shifting itself. We'll get yeah. to chimeras at some point. They yes. only existed in like second edition, second, as far as I can yeah. tell. Um, yes. But they were a cool idea, but they just decided to forget it. Um, anyway, the past the exaltation, yeah, the the archetypes that you sort of go for. We've talked a lot about the shape shifting. We have somewhat avoided mentioning the uh, the most yeah, let's say the most unique thing about how the lunars do shape shifting because it's not your classic. Uh, Envy from Full Metal Alchemist. Look at a person. Go. I want to look like that. Whoop. There's there's a procedure to follow here for people and for animals, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Because you don't. It's not aesthetic. It is individualized. You don't take the shape of cow. You take the shape of a cow. 
and you don't take the shape of person, you take the shape of Dave. And it's the heart's blood ritual. <laughs> yeah, in whatever that means. The the out-of-the-box version of that is probably as grisly as what you're thinking, uh, that in order to take someone's shape, you need to consume their heart's blood, which is, generally speaking, quite fatal. It straight up says the um, in third, um, the, the default ritual is you have to kill them and then drink the blood that comes from the heart. But... That there, there are there are wrinkles, charms that will allow it to change. And if you're coming to this um, to this podcast totally new to exalted, charms are the term for exalted magic or the exalted's ability to bend reality. It's not conscious spells as such. Disciplines, if you know vampire. Yes. It's actually quite close to Tolkien's elven magic, now I think about it. Yeah. It's just a thing that you do when you're exalted. It's not that you punch someone and and just yell fists of iron technique while you do it. Though you can do that. <laughs> you can do that, but it's not... Well, ca- canonically, as far as, I'm, as far as I remember, charms do um, are not acknowledged as discrete things in-universe. At least not in third... Mostly, yeah, it's they're not acknowledged as universal discrete yep. things. Like, okay, two solars who mechanically have the same charm might think of it as a different thing. One of them might just think, "Oh, I can, I can run up walls now," whereas one of them might think, "Ah, yes, this is the feet of spider technique or something like that." You can give it a silly anime name that you yell. Uh, they they knew what they were drawing from for inspiration, and they made they do make sure that yes, this is allowed. <laughs> It's just that the names in the books aren't universal. Yep, and just to get that back on track, Lunars can develop certain charms that allow them to do various non-lethal things in order to assume someone or something's shape. Exactly what that is will depend on the charm. For example, I think the appearance-based one is that if you can get them to have a tie of, um, of love or lust or something towards you, and have have sex, and then you can assume their shape. Various th- thematic things like that. There are some that aren't unethical. We'll get to them. <laughs> yes. Stuff, there are some... They're all unethical, now that I think about it, but there are some that are less concerning. Mm. One of them's just robbery. One of them is losing it in, in games of chance, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I was going to say that there are some that you can that you can do that don't require you to kill and or bang your uh, your opponent. Yes. Yeah, there are some not more non-invasive ones. I think we should probably go to casts at this that like likes like solars, there are different types of um different types of lunar exalted. Um again, um to use the um the analogy if different types of exalted are the race in inverted commas of exalted the casts again are classes as as you put it as you put it last time yeah. rails um but um with regard with regard to lunars they're not fixed out of the box because the moon changes so do lunars casts unless the lunar does something about it in the first stage, there were five and a half casts. Now there are three and a half casts. Yes, 
These are socially determined by the Lunars, and they are fixed by a thing called Moonsilver Tattoos. Moonsilver is one of the five magical materials in Exalted. The others are Orichalcum, which is a gold metal, Jade, which is what it says on the tin and comes in all varieties of shapes. Uh, you've also got Star Metal or Meteoric Iron. And then there's Soul Steel, which is steel that has souls bound into it. It's not a particularly nice process. And there are lots of other funny minor ones, but they're all bundled under exotic material. Yeah, those are the main magical materials as opposed to exotic materials. And the one that Lunars have the most to do with is Moonsilver. And they fix their casts by um, making them into tattoos. Um, you get tattoos with this metal woven into it, in inked, on inked onto your body, and then you are a cast because the, the, nature of, the nature of the tattoos have incantations bound into them that um, that means that it only expresses a certain portion of a lunar's nature. They were a physical invention by the Lunar Exalted. I, I'm pretty sure it's Raxi who developed them in the current form. I don't know whether she developed them in the First Age um, or not. She may have done. But they also serve the purpose of whoever's designing them because um, there were more casts, but... The casts got changed at a point in the Lunar Exalted's history, basically because they felt that they needed to change what they were in order to fit the changing conditions. Yes. They also, they don't just have these uh, these Moonsilver tattoos for fun and cast fixing. There is also no. a, another major reason for it. Moonsilver, all of the different uh, magical materials have specific attributes in a weird sort of metaphysics system that lets you do funny magical engineering. Uh, but... Moonsilver's primary two properties are, it's kind of like Mercury, it's always changing, it's semi-liquid at room temperature, all that stuff, hence you can tattoo it, despite being a metal, uh, but also it's fairy-proof. Yes. Uh, well, I think we'd better get to that in the history, because yeah. that gets into a good chunk of what the Exalted World is. Uh, we didn't present that in the first episode, because it wasn't directly relevant to, to Solars, but I think when we get to Luna's history, we are going to have to go into a bit of the nature of creation in order to have it make sense in itself. Yes, the, the key thing about the Luna casts, like you said, they're socially determined by the Pact, but this does mean that you, the player, as compared to you, the player character, have an excuse to have a cast that at least your character thinks mismatches them. Because the pact can have just said, this one's going to be a full moon. And your character's like, but I, 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 want, I want to be a baker. <laughs> yeah, it's very much down to whoever is giving you the tattoos. I don't know whether we've got any examples of anyone giving the ta giving that tattoo tattoos maliciously but i certainly think it would be an interesting dynamic to play out second phrases that well second says there's one theory by the castless we'll say what they are in a bit in a second but is that the the cast fixing as a whole is a malicious imposition so it's yes. it's not an unfloated idea fair enough and as to what the casts actually are um, as we said, there were more, but in the Age of Sorrows, we have the full moons, the changing moons, and the no moons, as well as the ones who don't have tattoos and are therefore castless. Uh, the, the full moons are the warriors, for want of a better term. It's 
it does say in um in the books that basically every lunar is expected to be a warrior in some way shape or form but the full moons are your exemplars of that they are your they are your physical ones they are your, they are the masters of the physical form i would say it the solar casts, you actually do have to go into the archetypes more deeply. The lunar ones, because the archetypes are so fluid between the casts, I do think the actual... The way to best describe them is, frankly, how... What they are reflecting mechanically, which is the division of yep. attributes. Because you know, your full moons mm -hmm. are exalted attributes, for those of you that don't look at the rule books because they're the size of your average family car. The attributes in exalted, there's nine of them. They come in three columns. Physical, stuff what you do with your body. Mental, stuff what you do with your thinking. And social, stuff what you do with your talking and looking. And that's what the three main lunar casts are in the broadest sense. So your full moons, anyone who is physical. Yep. That can be warriors, warriors, athletes, all these things. Um, it can be martial artists, though I don't know how many lunar martial artists we have canonically. There must be some, because there are specific <laughs> lunar martial arts, but... Yes, absolutely. There's dis there's distinct styles, so they do exist, and they do exist with a f in in fair enough numbers to at least propagate their martial arts. The trained, it's the problem. The idea of the trained martial artist with the discipline and the calm and that doesn't really feel very lunar. It depends. There are um, there are examples of quite of quite a few characters, um, including some in the book that. Um, basically exalt, rage out, and then spend years getting that back. You look at quite a few of the lunar locations and so on, and they're quite a few of them are very focused around sort of temples, monasteries, and that sort of thing. I, I picked up that vibe quite a bit from the third edition lunar um, lunar cast book. Yeah. Um, that they there is a there is a strain of kind of striving for the monastic and peace in a yeah. way that other types of exalted don't really need to. Yeah. Then we have the changing moons, who are the social ones. Uh, they, depending on whether you're asking the lunars or you're asking the realm, uh, the lunars will say that they are leaders and diplomats and speakers and weavers of words and all of these other fun things. Uh, the realm says that they're tricksters that come up to you, lie and swindle you out of everything you've ever owned. Yep. And both of these are one hundred percent true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's that's the fun thing because you 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 will have examples of both. And the final cast is the no moons, which are the law keepers of of the lunars. But again, going with the kind of less conventional, less institutional um, ideas, if you think of um, the no moons as compared to the twi uh, compared to solar twilights. Um, solar twilights are scholars and wizards and that sort of thing. Uh, no moons are witches, shamans, and storytellers in the sense of keep it, keepers of a tradition um, sort of thing. The best way for no moons, frankly, in 3rd edition, the all of the signatures in the 3rd edition Luna book have a nice little quote on the page with their lovely artwork on them. And the one for the no moon was just excellent uh, because it was a, it's... Just the, the signature no moon is a squid man, um, and or cra crawfish, sh shrimp man, some sort of weird thing that lives in water man, and it just says, uh, it just has the wonderful little line of, it says, it says here that no no one living on creation knows the name of this demon, 
How rude. They seem to have forgotten about me. And it is that thing. You can be a crazy, cackling magic person. You're less likely to be. You're more likely to be in the background just knowing things. And then you have the castless, uh, who are the ones who... Um, who are have not been assigned tattoos or, or have chosen not to take tattoos, um, and so their abilities change from from time to time. Mechanically speaking, the f- the full the full moons and the full moons anorama effects are generally speaking combat related. Um, you can add various dice to uh, feats to feats of strength and that sort of thing. You can also resist being intimidated and do some things to always be on your guard after an attack it does some funky things with resetting to base initiative if you want want it in system terms they're all fairly related to being big and in your face in a way that full moons tend to be changing moons there are basically some things to make your words sound sound more appealing and that they must be listened to um, while um, other things will um, boost your um, your ability to resist other people trying to influence you and you can also um, sometimes or at least once once per day mean uh, um, activate an ability that means that any any negative feelings anyone has towards you don't count when trying to so when trying to influence them in some way shape or form that's without going into the system that's probably as simple as we can get those uh the no moons for um you can make your make yourself harder to detect more visible it's it's kind of a not necessarily an always on but an easily accessible stealth buff this is a weird thing because twilight's had this as well despite not being the stealth people yeah uh, mind you lunas don't really have a stealth cast no, as such no moons of all of them no moons map cleanly onto twilights more than anyone else and yeah, that's it's true. It's just a nice little recurring theme that I think will be interesting to see as we go through the other ones of do, <laughs> do the designated nerd classes always have sneaky abilities now? <laughs> it would be interesting to see if we can find and see if we can draw out those comparisons. Yeah. Um, the um, They can also um, have um, a places of power detector. So if there is something strange in the neighbourhood, you know who to call. Um, to find the thing, they've got. Um, you can look. You, they can do things like finding shadowlands, particular domain, um, particular domains, and we'll get into those in a bit more detail uh, a bit later. Because I've realised that we haven't didn't really unpack a lot about the setting as such in our previous episode, and the setting um, is more important to how lunars work than it is to solars. So it's probably better to address here. In a nutshell, though, for that power, they find magic stuff. Or magic places, not magic stuff. Yes. They can't find the magic sword that's been lost, but if you know it's been stuck into a particular magical rock, they could probably find the magical rock. Yes. The castless, on the other hand, they have the funkiest little set. They are better at shapeshifting, just in both ways. Or, well, they do it cheaper. They don't get any extra shapeshifting abilities, but they do it cheaper. But also, of the big scary powers, the combat initiative reset, the make everyone's bad feelings stop applying, and the no moon one, 
which we didn't actually get to. We didn't get to because <laughs> which, I'm smart like that. <laughs> yeah, which is basically when your anima is at bonfire, so when you've expended enough of your essence, of your mag- of your magical power as an exalt, to basically mean that no one can mistake what you are. There are certain thresholds of spending essence points that mean that you go up stages of being more conspicuous. If you've seen Dragon Ball Z, it's the big energy glowy thing they do in Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, if if you hit the if you hit the highest level of uh, of that of that as um, as a no moon, then you can cash it in, make it all disappear, and you get additional moats to spend on sorcery abilities. Uh, sorceress moats are different types of moats if you think about um moats of essence is you drawing on the power of yourself as an exalt and this and the essence that is near you um sorceress moats is pulling in essence from the surrounding area um and but this this ability allows the no moons to cash in their um their anima their their huge great pillar of light in the sky i am an exalt kind of um, show, showiness to get extra sorceress moats for whatever yeah. they're doing sorcery wise at that point in time. Yeah, sorceress moats are primarily a mechanical contrivance, but well, I don't know. I, 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 I the way I'm the way I see it is that it's that the um is that the the exalt when they're spending personal stuff personal moats. It's when they're drawing on the stuff that's in the essence that's inside them. And when it's peripheral, it's stuff that's near them and they can easily grab. And when you're dealing with sorceress moats, it's stuff that's f- a bit further afield yeah. than that or harder to draw out of the environment. Yeah. Okay, I guess. But that, that, that's my way of rationalising yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I read it as a mechanical contrivance because essence is essence is essence, but you need there to be a parallel system because of how good magic is. Um but yes, anyway. but that's yeah, that's that's the final power for the no moons. Uh, the castless can use any of those abilities as um, once per day you can use any of those abilities. But there is a caveat, and so did you want to explain that thing as you were so enthusiastically diving I into it? I, I, I was. I get too excited about the castless for several reasons. But yeah, they they can use they can use all three of them, but they can't use any one repeatedly without alternating between the others unless they let um unless they let what is it a day pass is does it does the binding refresh daily as well or not because it's i know it refreshes between sessions but does the binding refresh daily or does it only refresh when you uh do all three it refreshes on a per session basis yeah which frankly i'm thankful for because i don't want another piece of bookkeeping between sessions but it's not per day Okay. It's not go to sleep and then it's all refreshed. Yeah. It is for as long as the session lasts. Yeah, okay. But yeah, they, they can use everyone else's, which is fun because they are, as we sort of mentioned before, they they are fluff-wise at least supposed to sort of go between them with the phases of the moon. Um, and the other interesting thing with them being better at shape-shifting, I don't know where else to put chimeras, but here, especially since they yep. now have rules that fit to them. Let, let's let's go let's go with that then. Second edition indulged the tendency that all of the White Wolf properties have of every book to have a section of 
And here's what this Black Book does when it goes bad. And second edition Lunars indulged it with the concept of Chimeras, who were exclusively castless Lunars. If you had your tattoos, you could never become a Chimera. Who, like in like here, second edition uh, castless were better at shapeshifting. But the idea there was they lost control of it. And we talked about the idea of losing yourself in the shapeshifting as something that third, at least, doesn't really lean into. Second had a, and this is what happens if you do, state, and it was the Chimera, where basically you become a freaky monster, uh, in the use of a better term. It was a bit more um, tied in with the, th- the the second edition stories of the Lunars in the Wild. Yes. It was the ones that spent too long in the wild, um, and lost themselves as a result of that. It's not a case of you spend too long as a lunar and you will eventually become a chimera because the beast will claim you or yeah. whatever. It's because the changing power of the wild, yes. which we will get to when we get to the histories, will change you into something else. What, what I should say is it wasn't just wild exposure that did it, though. It was explicitly... It wasn't being a lunar that did it, but it was constantly shape-shifting because... Second edition castlers were this. You can just do it cheaper. There, they actually did it better, and it's the thing mm-hmm. of the more you indulge the, they do phrase it like an addiction sometimes of shape shifting, which they do say is well. I can imagine it would be a fun thing if you could do it, but the more you <laughs> indulge it, the more you're at risk of, and they do phrase it as forgetting you inside the change, which is the wild. But that's because again, second phrased Luna and the Lunas as having something of the wild about them on an inherent level. <laughs> yeah, first edition lent into that a little as well, but th- third... First edition lent hard into it. Yes, th- third hasn't really touched on that, and it's it's a big omission, so there's a lot of... There's some thematic changes to them in third quite, quite heavily. It's probably uh, because uh, third wants to have a different wild-flavoured exalt who will probably come out by the time we get to them. Probably. <laughs> we'll see. Um, next up in terms of... Um, in, t- in terms of what uh, what Lunars are and, and how they work, um, the, um, what, on, the, on a systems level, and we've, we've kind of talked about it a bit already and kind of implied it with how the casts work, but their charms are attribute-based. Um, and mm. the, the Solars have... Um, ability-based charms and dragon blooders do as well um so you have charms for melee or brawl or athletics or whatever um so some kind of refinements to allow you to do stuff that the lunar charms are by and large split by attributes so you have so you will have stamina charms you will have strength charms you will have manipulation charms there are some bits of flex in here two exceptions basically martial arts and sorcery well yeah but there is a there is a lunar keyword that means that uh, if you fit certain preconditions um with your spirit shape you can access them uh, regardless mm. um regard or, or you treat them as a different attribute or you can do yeah like um, there, there is a particular strand of intelligence charms that are to do with tactics that if your spirit shape is a pack animal, you can access it as a stamina okay. charm. Yeah, the... So it, it makes things like... It makes lunars with a wolf spirit shape, say, more likely to, to use cunning even if they're not focused on being cerebral. 
I was going to say, it's the, the interesting thing thematically, again, because what we don't want to do is become a thing that talks about rules. <laughs> Imagine knowing what the rules were. <laughs> um, thematically, it's quite interesting because it basically ties in to pushing the idea that a solar is powerful because of what what they can do. They are excellent. Like, so a lunar is powerful because of what they are, which is archetypically a slab of muscle the size of a 4x4 that's currently barging through your forest, town, castle, palace, entire army, delete as appropriate. Yes. And that there's, although there are common strands in how those tra- charms are treated, um, like each attribute will have a section on heart's blood charms, which are those different hunting rituals that you can use to um, to assume someone's shape or steal their shape. Like, um, do generally doing things less offensively than killing them and eating their heart. Things like the the one that I just remember is that you can um, you can gamble for someone's shape. Proper fairy law. Yeah. So long as they don't realise what's going on, you can use a bleak language. So, like, if if I if I win this if I win this game of cards, I get to choose when you show your face here. One hundred percent fairy law, then. Yes, which means yeah, because you because that can be interpreted so many different ways. Oh, Luna Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, oh, I want that. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but and they've got various other things like um, like tactics as is a stream across multiple attributes or strategy or like that or sorcery or um, not no not not quite sorcery but stealth. Yeah. The, uh, various categories that just transcend the attributes appear in not every attribute, and some will only appear in one or two, but they have subcategories in a way that solar tr- that solar charms do, but they're not named as such, and they're not thematically grouped. In practice, it results in... The Lunars are more adaptable, they're more well-rounded. They might not be able to push the individual feats of absolute insanity that a Solar can get away with. They can serve more roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the nature of them as, as survivalists, almost, that they, they, need, they need to be quite a few things in order to get by. Although, the one thing that they are supposedly good at, that no one apart from the Death Knights is good at, is necromancy. Yes. For whatever reason, I, they, I, it's there is an explanation in the rules, but um, or in the in the Lunar Calum book, there are theories. It's hit me. I personally read this as with a lot of things. Lunar, as compared to the Unconquered Sun, draws a lot more from what you actually see in real life loon, moon deities. The Unconquered Sun, we've said this before, is more of a war god than he is anything else. But Luna, basically anything that you can think a moon god has done is listed somewhere as an aspect of Luna. And that is where I'm pretty sure they've taken the affinity for necromancy from, because that is a common thing. It is it is the work that is done in the night and all of that. There are stuff in some of the books, both second and third, that lean to the idea of Luna is subversive and Luna is... Not unacceptable. That sounds like I'm just being anti-Luna, but that's what she does. She goes against the grain, and that's yep. what necromancy is. Uh, because we'll get to this in the abyssal episode, but 
The idea of the undead and necromancy is a metaphysical crime in a way that summoning demons isn't. <laughs> yes. Um, that gets into quite a bit into quite a bit of the history as to why. Yeah, but but it's, it goes against the grain, and that's the sort of thing of as to why Luna, the goddess, is closer to it. Because she can also be a patron goddess of necromancers, which I have no mm-hmm. doubt riles the Death Lords up something rotten. Yes. Because it's... Well, it, that's the whole thing of kind of Luna, Luna as a transgressive being. Yeah, is the thing that kind of I can think of there that it's a ba- it's a boundary, the boundary between life and death, and that sort of process and that sort of occupation of liminal spaces. And she does a line dance on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of o- occupying that in between, not quite either or both, as circumstances dictate. It doesn't actually say a whole heap in third edition about why. Um, it's just they have a na- they have a natural affinity for it, so. That, so you can kind of make that what you will. Yeah. O- older editions played into it a lot more, but then third leads into a lot more of, no, 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 just lunar sorcerers. Like, it, Raxi's completely a sorceress now, isn't she? Whereas beforehand she dual-wielded. I think that's more in terms of the system than it is the fluff. Yeah. Because they haven't got necromancy rules out yet. Yeah, um, okay. I would be... Very, very surprised if there wasn't a um, a version of Raxi floated with necromancy at some point when we actually have necromancy rules. Yeah, that's the thing. that Luna's, for use of a better term and for use of us finding more evidence, just be aware that necromancy's kind of their thing. Third edition plays it that they can do sorcery as well. Older editions actually leaned more towards if a Luna does magic, it's more likely to be necromancy than it is to be sorcery. Whereas third seems to play its 50-50. Yeah. They literally say in the necromancy thing, it's kind of, it's a workaround because the rules don't exist yet, but it's play them as if they have sorcery, but reskin it and limit what they do with it. Yeah. As in don't, don't let them use necromancy to heal. Unless <laughs> and it's a Things like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, and all that sort of stuff. Um. Yeah. Then at that point, I think we've already really mentioned with their monstrous urges and like, and, that's that's how the great curse manifests in them. We've gone into this in quite some depth already in their shape shifting. So at that point, I think we actually do have to go to how they play with the with the rest of creation. Yep, that makes total sense. We can talk we can talk about that. We said that the lunars are kind of the counterparts to the solars, and they sort of they play a bit nicer with the societies that they're involved with. Where solars will raise up empires, lunars will build societies is more or less how I see it. Yeah. They will cultivate cultures yeah. and raise them up and be alongside them. They won't rule them so much. The line that I saw in one of the second edition books um, was straight up, the lawgivers sire empires, we sire people. Which yeah. works as a pun for one of the other things lunas do. <laughs> yes. Beast man. <laughs> yes. Um, the um, lawgivers in that case, meaning solars, it's one of the... It's one of the other terms for solars. But um, it also means that, generally speaking, well, territory um, in itself has an interesting place to play because there are various Luna charms that play into being territorial, as in territorial animals and claiming areas. But it also means that, ultimately, any given Luna is less likely to care about a given piece of ground and its borders versus the people that are in it. 
So there's that ambivalence with how they interact with territory and the like there. The way they play with territory, it's... We'll get into it. In fact, no, we can get into it now since we're talking about territory. They do yes. establish dominions, which is the term that they use in third and second, definitely, maybe first as well, for the the use of a better term, the empires of the various lunars. These empires may have hundreds or thousands of people in them, or these empires may have one person in a tower in them, but they are all established as the dominion of a certain lunar. Uh, and they all have wonderful names, which is the exalted standard. We can go uh, through at least a few that the third, mention, the third edition mentions now. Um, yes. I... I will start with the one that I'm most familiar with, the Nameless Lair of Mahasuchi, which is a wonderful stretch of jungle, perfect for holidaying if you don't mind the skulls. Mahasuchi, we'll get into him in a bit later, suffice to say he's a big, scary man, and I think I'd be confident in saying he's one of the most reviled, not reviled as in hated, but reviled as in feared, Lunas, full stop. Yes, he's he's been a feature of the military landscape uh, against the realm for a very long time and he's one of the well for for pretty much the entire realm's existence and prob- and predating the realm he's he's old he's also one of the ones that has been historically more likely to directly oppose the realm with military force yes is he, one of the things uh, he has a bit of jungle just south of the scavenger lands, maybe in the scavenger lands, depending on how you define the scavenger lands. We'll get to them later. But he has a bit of jungle just south of there, and his dominion, unlike quite a lot of others, has a clear border. It's made of skulls. Yes. You, you are walking in the jungle one day, and then you see a border of skulls as far as you can see. And if you put, like the sort of line is, you put one foot over that line and you're on a hit list, son. Because nowadays, he doesn't really go out that much. He sits inside his in his little kingdom uh, with his city. He's got a city deep in there that's a sort of old ruined jungle temple thing that's full of beast men that are supposedly living a really quite prosperous and wealthy life in there. Because we'll get to him later. But it's basically dangerous jungle with a wonderful city in the middle of it. Well, the ruins of a wondrous city, which is it's still again being lived in a and thematic. It's being prosperous, so I would imagine it's they might be living in the ruins, but they're basically living it like it's a city. Yes, uh, there is um, the Thousand Fangs Army Total Control Zone, which <laughs> just the most exalted name. The name is just ah. It demands uh, being which, written in all caps. Yeah, it's it's the that's the domain of Raxi. Um, the um, the aforementioned sexy sixteen-year-old baby eater, and we'll we'll we'll, get, we'll unpack how Hello? that has. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 deal with that now. But just be aware that there's a heck of a lot there. But the thousand the the total control zone itself um, is based around the ruins of a first age city that C basically took over immediately following the Great Contagion. Which again, the history we will get to that there and had a squabble with Mahasuchi about how to proceed. They they took the place together, and now it's her place, and is, again, a very, very prosperous trading region with 
kind of implies an awful lot of things like social welfare programs and the like as well. But again, it's a place where you do not go unless you are a guest or unaffiliated to pretty much any government body. Yeah, the the recurring thing you'll notice with the Dominions and more broadly Lunars in general is that they tend, this isn't universal, this is more tendency, but they do tend to be written as closer to morally good if it weren't for all the ultraviolence, whereas pretty much everything else in Exalted is ruthlessly pessimistic and cynical about people. And then there is the Empire of the Bear, which is basically crypto-Ottomans. Yeah. They have janissaries, they establish schools that they straight up call them madrasas to establish a particular theological outlook. The Empire of the Bear was seeded by Aluna. Um, She went away and has been having a high old time of it. Um, Well, not exactly, but has been doing other things. And has basically come back, wants to start using her society that she planted uh, as a tool against the realm Mm. and left a holy book there um, with specific passages in that she could then come back as as a prophet and leverage centuries later. But the interpretations have diverged further than she thought, so she can't argue with the holy men the lines of argument that she would have done to get them on side. Um, The Empire of the Bear is actually a literal empire. It's not ruled by her, um, but it is kind of swallowing up other territories, taking slaves, taking people to be janissaries, and kind of rolling up the map, so to speak. Yes. And will eventually reach the realm. Yes, and the one other... Demi-Dominion, much like the Empire of the Bear, isn't really seeing any active use from its uh, ruler. There's another thing, and what this is going to be, advance warning for you all, this is going to be the one that gets angry letters sent in, when I say that the Haslanti Federation should be considered a Lunar Dominion. Whew. You're going to have to unpack that one. Right. Haslanti Federation uh, is insane. We'll cover a whole episode on it alone. Uh, all you need to know now is it's sci-fi First Nations in this fantasy world. I cannot think of a better way Mm -hmm. to nutshell them. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, they are basically Inuits with magical airships. Yeah, they're cool. They're very cool. But their thing, they were, back in the day, they were a not even loosely confederated. They were a bunch of completely disconnected tribes who had some beef with the realm, had some beef with the guild, until a random lunar... Well, he didn't show up. They went to him because uh, they got in, they got in a war with the realm, and they went to the local lunar who lived in a tower. It was a man called Gerd Marrow Eater. I mentioned him at the start, and you have to say his full name, because it's a hilarious one. And he basically taught them, I think he was aspected to the crow, or the vulture, or the owl, a bird. Um, but he basically taught them all to confederate, to work together, military tactics, he led them into battle, he curb-stomped a lot of their enemies, and he did the cool little, again, fairy lore as Lunars, which is a whole different thing to unpack, of, he promised at the start, I will lead you into two battles, and on the third I will leave, so it will be your victory. And he did exactly that, and they absolutely won, took over a massive swathe of the North, and he basically built that society and then left as soon as it was done, and no one knows where he is now. But given how the rest of the Lunars behave, and some other things we'll see about how the Pact treats Threshold peoples, I am comfortable to treat the Haslanti Federation as one of as a Lunar Dominion, even if it's only as loose as they set this up. Yeah, it's it's something a Lunar started. 
It's something a lunar started, designed, and is doing the things that the lunars want all the threshold people to do. Yeah, but it's not something that's being actively managed by a lunar. Neither's the bear. Mm, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's that's a fair point. I and I think I think we possibly should finish off on an example saying that they don't have to be huge great nations that are going against everything. Finishing finishing off with one of the other examples from third edition, uh, the mountain of the spider king. Yes. Which is exactly what it says on the tin. Well, no, because it's more than just a mountain. Because he goes all throughout the surrounding area, doesn't he? Yes. Okay. It's 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 a, it's a surrounding area, but it's not a, it's not a huge area. It's, I'm I'm not even sure I really call it a state. Basically, this lunar whose shape is all things spider has set up a fortress within a mountain, more or less, n- not taking over anything pre-existing or going into anything from before, but has set this place up explicitly to cause trouble for anyone on a particular road in the north yes. um he basically runs a society that is of the di- uh, of the dispossessed and bandits and so on within the north oh, sorry we we say society the other notable thing about the mountain of the spider king as compared to all the other ones is that most of the population are his progeny <laughs> that's true he does incorporate the dispossessed and the like, and he also implicitly has children with most of them, or he just has a lot of children with a few people. The image that they give you in it is like his inner sanctum, his throne room, for use of a better term, is just flocked with spider beast men, and they're all his kids and grandkids. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And with that, I think we should probably touch on beast folk. Yes, uh, Lunas get around. <laughs> well... Because lunars are quite so mutable and so related to animals, uh, they have various ways of producing crossbreeds of people, for want of a better term. Think of any animal um, you like, and you can produce a human breed with it. There are things like Rayton folk. There are shark folk. Um, at least there certainly were in in second edition. I've not seen any examples yep. in third. Uh, spider so, Spider Men. We've seen this. Absolutely. Um, ape Ape folk. Let us not forget the most fearsome of them all. And I'm only half joking with that. The Goatman. Yes. Mahasuchi is formed to the goat, which does hilariously mean that the goat is one of the most fearsome types of beast men you can see. Just because it means that he's here somewhere. He's formed to multiple types. Yes, he's chimeric. It's that his spirit form is is a hybrid of a goat and something else. Lion, cat, thing. Yeah, and within Mahasuchi's society, goat folk function as diplomats, sages, scholars, typically. Whereas the other types do do other things, like the lions or cat um, cat types will be... Uh, will be the warriors. These are created when, when either um, there's a particular lunar charm that designates an area, a gauntlet, or a place of trial, and if you survive, you are transformed into a, uh, into a particular type of beast folk, as designated mm-hmm. by the by the lunar. Or, as we were talking about with the Spider King, if you have sexual relations with a lunar while they are in their half and half form in their um in the e- either that or in their full-on spirit form then that you can get beast folk out of that coupling it's a wonderfully complex system that they've got that is just ripe for making a million furry jokes out of yeah. and 
dear listeners, you don't know how restrained I've been. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's true of a surprising amount of Lunas. Basically, every big-named Luna has Beastmen, and quite a lot of them. We'll unpack Raxi later. <laughs> but the, and the reason for that is because it's one way of ensuring that they're loyal, at least in my opinion. Because, mm. gen- oh, yeah. because generally speaking, unless you can make a society that respects beast folk for what they are and give them a place in society, which Lunas are very able to do, then they're going to be mistreated. So they have nowhere else to go quite often. Mm. It's not exactly slavery, but if you are um, if you are a beast folk, then you will absolutely stand out wherever you go. The beast folk also, I should say that beast folk can be created through other means, but... Most of the notable beast folk populations out there that aren't too far near the edges of creation are the result of lunar breeding programs in one way, shape, or form. Yes, um, it's like we say they they can occur naturally, but the assumption is uh, if you see a beast man, there's a lunar somewhere near. Yep. But equally as well, there's an argument to be said that in quite a few cases, it may not even be deliberate for the loyalty thing it's just a matter of as much as we're analyzing them here lunas are people too yeah and sometimes in your however many thousands of years uh, lunas last a long time mm-hmm. we'll get into that but you'll you'll decide that you quite like this this little human person and they do have partners lovers even occasionally wed and settle down and all of that and it just so happens that the children happen to have wings or gills yep or horns <laughs> And it's just an unfortunate necessity of how they work, because their very essence is mutagenic. I wasn't aware that it occurred only if they were in form. I thought it was just whenever they, whatever form they were in, people, half and half, or full spirit, it makes a beastie. Not necessarily. Um, okay. They were, um, because you then want, you can wind up with perfectly human moon-touched, at least in third. Okay, um, right. Moon-touched are the names of direct lunar offspring. Again, because of the boundaries are are always fuzzy with lunars, they pass on some of their exaltation to their children. This isn't really a thing so much with other exalt types, but but it's such a common thing with lunars um, that they are called moon-touched. The system at least has a term for them. I don't know how far it exists within the universe, I'm certain that some elder lunars would probably come up with it. Or failing that, at least within the lunar tribes, that is how they will be referred to. Yeah, absolutely. And there will be, as we sort of mentioned, not all beast men are children. Some of them are just welcome to welcome to my uh, total wipeout challenging. I've set up to turn you into super soldiers. Those moon touched will quite frequently have positions of respect within a society that's controlled by a lunar, if not outright running it in the lunar stead. Generally speaking, the next thing then we've said how they re- how they relate to creation. Let's go into how they relate to not creation, <laughs> which is the ugliest way to grammatically put it. But yes, it's yeah the wild and also controversially to throw a curveball in here heaven okay because they relate to both of them in interesting ways we'll start with the wild because that's the bit we've actually got scripted yes (laughs) okay just before we get there i think we probably need to unpack how creation works in relation to everything else because we haven't so far no (laughs) because if if you if you are unaware of what 
the world of creation is in Exalted as a physical world, it is flat. It is a roughly, it is a ultimately at, at its edges are kind of, um, the, the maps you will see are square. Um, I see in my head that it's ultimately a rhombus or diamond shape. Yeah, raggedy diamond. The reason for that is that it is a little patch of ordered stuff in a roiling sea of chaos, which is held down with five big nails. Yes, it's um, that sea of that sea of chaos is called the wild. The five big nails that are holding it down are the elemental poles. The elemental pole of Earth is in the middle of creation and is also. At the Imperial Mountain, a right slap bang in the middle of the Blessed Isle, and it's it's the most stable one. Yes, it's why you, well, in older editions you don't see fairies on the Imperial Isle. In third, you just don't see them as much. Yes, you then have um, the elemental pole of air in the north. So the further north you get, or closer you get towards that, um, the pole of air, it gets colder, it gets more windy, and Ultimately, you just wind up with a blinding blizzard as you get to the pole. Also, elemental air is key to lightning because it's also electric. Yes. Important for magic because the pole of air is a big column of lightning. Mm -hmm. You then head east um, and you get to the elemental pole of wood where the forests just get denser and denser and denser and eventually something out there will kill you. Yeah, the, the, the trees get bigger, the shadows get deeper and the things in them get scarier. Yep. I also like to imagine that the pole of wood is just a very big tree. Yeah, that, that I don't see it as being anything else. From what I can see with how everything goes, the majority of your beast folk will be in this direction. Yes, the it, it's the weird one of... You don't have many details about the elemental poles because, as we've sort of mentioned so far with these two, the environment gets a lot more hostile the closer you get to them. So even in universe, it's not really mapped. It's no. it's a here be dragons kind of danger zone. But the east is the one that you can theoretically get the closest to because it's not... If you walk far enough north or south, you die. And you can't walk far enough west. It's also the one most associated with life. So I should say that if... Um, I don't know whether it's gone far enough that if you kill whatever's trying to kill you, then it comes right back um, if you get near enough. Maybe. But it would not surprise me. <laughs> There's mileage for an abyssal game out there, you know? Oh, yeah. If you go south, you have the elemental pole of fire... Uh, so every you further south you go, everything gets drier and more sandy, and everything. I don't know whether things perish more quickly out there, but it um, wouldn't surprise things, me. Things get things get dry, things get more volcanic. Yes, and the pole of fire itself is a column of flame. The the southern pole is more notable because in the desert down south there, it's it's the one whose influence is felt the furthest away from it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The southern desert becomes inhospitable very close to the... Uh, like quite early in, basically. Yep. And to the west, we have the elemental pole of water, which is where the sea meets the sky, is how I've seen it described. The ocean just keeps going. Yeah. There's, it, it gets to the point where there aren't any more islands, and you don't have the provisions. But yes, it's, it's inside... It's inside the wild, which is your endless sea of primordial chaos. Uh, people get offended whenever you describe the wild as anything, because uh, everyone has a different idea on what it should be. 
but it's the crazy primordial chaos. When we keep describing fairies in the Fae, technically they're this. They are the chaos. They were here before the world was made, and they find it really, really quite rude that you're trying to impose this existing thing on them. Yeah, although it's it's there's an ambivalence there because they love it and they hate it. Yes, the fair folk both both hate that it exists and find it really tasty. Yeah, they're quite related to the lunars, as we will see in the history bit. But yes, there is there is this. The wild is the ocean here. Creation is a block nailed into it. There are three other planes, and I think we do just have to get the brief plane of cosmology over. Yep. There is heaven, which is, is it directly above in third? It used to be. Now it might just be nebulously transcendental. <laughs> it's not been set, set as to where it is. Okay. There, there, are, there are places that you, and I think it was even kind of floating away slightly in second, because yeah. there were places that you could access it, and they weren't implied to be lifts. No, the, the gates are one thing, but they're interplanar. I just remember because the day star was a thing. Um, okay. But anyway... The heaven, it's where the gods hang out. There's also two of yes. them, but I really don't need to go into Zenmu. No, you don't. It's where the gods are. It's cool. It's also a bureaucracy. Because, oh, yes. exo- because Exalted functions, or takes a lot of its inspiration from Chinese history and, chi- and Chinese model- understandings of the cosmos, heaven is a bureaucracy. Gods administrate how the world works. And everything that that means so you have your gods you have your gods of small streams um and gods of rocks in small streams gods of individual fields the the higher up the hierarchy you go um the more the more you technically have responsibility for and the more prayer you can get and the more likely you are to get a plush office in yushan yes uh yushan as well heaven yushan these terms are synonymous uh heaven isn't a fun cloud with pretty angels and cupids on it it's a city with apartments and roads, <laughs> uh, and policemen who are lions, but that's separate. But yeah, heaven, quite nice, all things considered. The other two planes aren't. There's the underworld, which I mentioned before that necromancy was a metaphysical crime. We'll save most of it for the abyssal episode, but the underworld basically is a mistake. Uh, it's it's where creation broke a little. Yes. Um, we're going from the history, the beings that weren't supposed to die and physically couldn't die were killed. <laughs> did did die, were killed, um, and as a result, the cycle of reincarnation, which is how things should work, doesn't always work that way. And the underworld is the not corpse honest gov of of the, of these of these beings. And that's where some spirits end up. Well, no, no, the underworld isn't a corpse. The underworld's a hole. The underworld is just a hole. It's a crack. Uh, because Malpheus, otherwise known as Hell, is the inside-out corpse of a god with demons in it and other gods in it. Just to make that difference, because when I first heard of these terms, I thought, hang on, aren't they really similar? The beings that created the underworld are the Neverborn because they died, um, in inverted commas, but they couldn't and you've also got malpheus which is also the same class of being as the neverborn but not dead yes not dead exactly so describing it as a corpse is not strictly accurate yes okay but, the the mutilated inside out body of a god with of a got primordial titan let's use the greek because that's what they were ripping off yes the inside out, the inside out body of a titan, yep. uh, who is really, really angry about being inside out and having all of his, uh, all of his 
co-titans inside his inside-out body and demons in it. Yes. The only notable difference between uh, what the popular perception will be and the general terms of hell and the underworld, people don't go to Malpheus unless they're trying to. It's not somewhere you end up as punishment or whatever. The only people that go there are wizards because they're trying to do wizard things. Uh, whereas the underworld, when you die, it's a 50-50 on if you reincarnate or go there. It's not quite 50-50. There are ways to influence it, but sometimes you reincarnate, sometimes you just turn into a ghost and go downstairs, and it's a perfect mirror of creation. But those are the planes. Uh, uh, mm, yep. Mo- that's, yep. We can... They will have their own episodes later. <laughs> yes, that's just so that you can get a rough understanding of how the planes work. And just to get back on track, uh, the reason that we get into this and we associate Lunas with the wild is, well, the, the thematics are all there because change in mutability and all that stuff. The reason that they were associated with it was, again, this is going back to the Edition Wars bit. In First Edition, the Lunars, at one point in the history, um, wound up being driven into the wild and various other things happened. In Second Edition, that got de-emphasised a little bit, from what I can tell. And in Third Edition, it's not really mentioned at all, beyond the fact that Moonsilver tattoos will protect you against the warping effects of the wild if any if anyone strays too far into the wild for too long then they will start to change yes it's very much like the warp from 40k i'm almost certain there might have been some inspiration taking involved possibly in how it functions there are also little pockets of it throughout creation it's not just on the borders so to speak it's just that's where you will reliably find it Creation is a piece of cloth that's pinned down to it, and because it's been around so long and it's been through so much, it's starting to fray a little. Yes, um, but yeah, Lunas were linked to it in first edition because that's where they went to go and hide. They still went to hide there even in third, to be fair. They ran away to the edges and then came back. But yeah, they've, they've always had a history with it. With the moon silver tattoos, with the way Luna is, and I think even third does admit it that they do make very good fairy hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's they always have a some tie to the wild in nebulous ways between editions as uh, as established there, but they are closely tied to it, and it's because as well shape shifting. We've said the wild changes you. It's kind of implied that the shape shifting has sort of something to do with it. Second edition went as far as to say that Luna probably has something to do with the wild, mm-hmm. insofar as any of the gods do. Okay, change itself is the property of the wild. It is constant change and chaos, and so any being that is inherently changed, like Lunas are and like Luna is, is going to be flirting with it, basically. Yep. Whether or not they're directly tied really changes down to your storyteller's decision on how closely <laughs> they want them to be tied. Yep. But Heaven, how they integrate with Heaven, this is this is the fun one. Okay. Uh, because, welcome back, kids. Put on your tinfoil hats. I'm about to talk about Sidereals. Sidereals uh- <laughs> so being the exalt type that are... I kind of read the archetype as both administrators of reality and really good at martial arts. They're magical feds. Yeah, actually, uh, they're really not presented this way, but if you think about Agent Smith from The Matrix... Yes, that's exactly right. Both can really do kung fu and are very concerned with how reality works and making sure that it works properly. They work for the Matrix of Fate, who are the goddesses of destiny. We've slightly touched on this in the Solar episode briefly. The thing is, we mentioned before that the usurpation was all a big con that I blame them for. Now, the Lunars remember. 
Yes. The Lunars remember this. They do not like them. Uh, and the Sids, the Sids also do not like the Lunars. In second, they outright say that the, the reason the Wild Hunt was instituted was because all of the Lunars, most of the Lunars got away. Yep. And the Sidereals formed it to track them down and hunt them because they're dangerous. Yes. The Wild Hunt being the, um, being the big, crea- um, big creation-spanning institution of get rid of anything that the Immaculate Faith considers to be anathema, which is... Base, there, there, there are wrinkles to it, but anything that goes against the established order of the Immaculate Faith, which says that the dragon-blooded are on top, everyone else, uh, mortals are underneath, and the Celestial Exalted are really not supposed to be there and need to be stomped out. The Lunars have a beef with them, mostly because they remember it. They also, nebulously between editions, are fully cognizant that it's that the Dragonbloods didn't come up with this on their own. Because... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the Siderials never admitted to this. They try to pretend they don't even exist. Yes. But the Lunars, they knew the dragons, and the dragons were the foot soldiers. And well, people get offended. It's... They were the, Okay, they were the military arm. Yes, they, they, they were the ones doing the work. Quite how much the dragon-blooded were either duped into doing it or were willing co-conspirators is up for debate. Yes, Yes, but it's the key point for the Lunars in Heaven is the Lunars know the Sidereals were in this. And given how Sidereals are and how they were, one of their titles in the first stage was the Viziers. Like, and I'm choosing to believe that carries all the baggage calling someone a Vizier does nowadays um, of mm-hmm. pulling the strings. Yes. But the Lunars know this. They have beef with them. It ties into why they ran away to the wild. The... More in the Sidereal episode. They use a supercomputer in heaven to see how reality works. <laughs> the And that supercomputer lets them see the future, but it doesn't let them see anything going on in the wild, which is why the Lunars ran away to the edges. That makes total sense. It's the Sidereal's blind spot, and when you're dealing with people who can see the future hunting you, you have to go where they can't see. Yep. But they have a beef with them, which is why I quite like Lunars, because <laughs> I have a beef with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um... I think, given everything else, we probably should just dive into the history. We've been alluding to it for so long. I think we actually need to do the chronological at this point. Yes. So, way back when, back to the Divine Revolution. Uh, we've talked about this one before, but for those of you who didn't want to see the Solar episode because Solars are boring, <laughs> Divine Revolution, all of, the, all of the primordials who made the world read Titans in Greek mythology have been spending too much time playing the games of divinity and making the gods do all the work so that the gods decide maybe we should be up playing di- playing the games of divinity and make someone else do all the work. Uh, the unconquered son and his mates, Luna, who then pulls in her girlfriend Gaia, who is a primordial, and the maidens all get together, have a little mother's meeting, decide, let's make Exalted. Give humans superpowers by the gods, but enough free will that the Primordials can't just order us, tell them to stop. Luna makes her Lunas not to be all perfect and superhumany like the Unconquered Sun does. She makes them to be adaptable. She makes them for guerrilla warfare. She makes them in the assumption that see what the Unconquered Sun has made, she's like, they're probably not going to be able to do a lot of the dirty work. And also, she sees what the Maidens have made in the Siderials and is like, ah, they're playing a long game. They've set these people up to be advisors to the Solars after the fact, and they're going to be too cold and too analytical. So here's someone who cares about the little guy. 
mm-hmm. which is why the Lunas have their affiliation for tribal cultures and the like. That is by design. They are... <sighs> because the Dragonblooded weren't designed as discreetly, they were designed to not die on receiving their exaltation. <laughs> um, the Lunas are actually the ones that were most designed to be close to humans. Yep. How that manifested across the line is a separate problem. But they made them, and they killed all the primordials. And well, everything was good. <laughs> so the theory goes. Um, then the the first then the first age happens, and the direct rule of all types of exalted of all creation. So your solars are sitting there functioning as your god kings. The lunars uh, and the sidereals are, are there as the advisors. The lunars are. Again, it, it varies a bit from edition to edition, but there are terms like consorts and such like that are that are brought in, like they're meant like they're meant to be paired. Third edition has veered a bit away from that, but lunars are the the ones who get engaged in the wet work, so to speak. They are the ones who govern from the shadows and also um, potentially patrolled the borders. And because they were dealing with with sh- with change and so on themselves, they were kind of. Mir- not exactly mirrors to the Fae, but well well equipped to deal with what the Fae could and throw at them. It is around this point that the tattoos are instituted, though at this point there's still five castes. Yes. Uh, and the two castes that didn't exist there, basically you can split up the Changing Moon into three... Three? No. Yes, you can. Wax, uh, waxing, waning yeah. in half. There you go. Waxing, waning in half. And all of those compile down in modern into Changing Moon. And the the five lunar ones there, they actually do neatly reflect the solars. Yes. So you have the, that whole idea of a solar counterpart that much more. And th- this kind of happens overall at a governmental level as well. Because uh, while these solars form the solar deliberative to run creation and... In theory, various bits of heaven as well, I think, if you believe certain portions of second edition, mm-hmm. then... Um, and they formed the, the solar deliberative to rule. The, the lunars started to started to chafe under the rule of the solars because they weren't designed to be, or they they didn't want to be quite, quite in in those roles. So that it well again it it also depends on which edition you read. I think because yes, yes, this is, this is the third edition telling of it mm-hmm. uh, that um, there were because the um, the solar and lunar exaltations reincarnate. And because the techniques in the first age to preserve those memories were so much better, if you wound up with a feud, it would wind up going through generations. And so they create. Um, so they, in order to kind of forestall this, um, they created. It's implied that it's the exalts themselves that did this. So in theory, it could be undone, but I don't think there's any mention that it has been. But the solar bond was created to form sorts of political marriages between pairs of. So of solar and lunar exalted i think that's probably the best way to put it yes. so to make sure that they were tied together in alliance type things and without necessarily the emotional connections mm. second says there was outright a war at some point okay where the lunars just decided no screws but moreover mm-hmm. one that both editions have you know we mentioned before that it was strictly one-to-one this was luna being clever and being a trickster what the unconquered sun wanted was the lunar host as a whole to be bonded to the solar host as a whole so that they could not disobey. Luna finagled it and tri- basically tricked him into making it a each individual is bound like this so that pretty much 
each it was still unbalanced, like the unconquered sun wanted, so he thought he was on top. But each solar had pretty much his sort of advantage, so to say it, over one lunar. But still had to be afraid of the rest. And yeah, that was it's one of those bits of that really characterizes Luna that she pulled that off. Yes. And in the midst of all that sort of happening, Luna's thought, hang on, we're getting a bit of a raw deal here. And they formed the they formed the Shadow Deliberative in re- in response to this because they thought, no, okay, so this is being used to some degree to con- to control us and to ma- to make us more predictable to the Solars. So we need to organise. They formed the Shadow Deliberative, uh, which went on various various wars of discover um, of discovery and so on. Um, throughout what was known as the as the old realm, creation's borders get got got expanded and pushed against the wild quite a lot um, at this point in time because all of the magics that could be used to hold the wild back were fully functioning, um, and the lunars were behind several of those efforts. And the desire for the shadow deliberative to be an independent thing from the solars was driving quite a bit of that expansion. Yes, edition wars. Third basically makes it always political from the start, yep. as I understand it. Yep. Second doesn't. Second one doesn't go for the shadow deliberative thing. Second no. has it always be called the Silver Pact. Right. That's what it'll be called later. The Silver Pact, as they had it there, didn't start as a political entity. It started as a religious one. You may have noticed, whenever we talk about Luna, we seem to be contradicting ourselves and going off in random little tangents. That is because Luna contradicts herself and goes off in random little tangents. Yes. And all of her chosen... Really, really wanted to know. Now, wait, wait a minute. She seemed nice when I met her. Um, what does she want? Like, she's a god. We're supposed to do the stuff the gods want, right? That's what the solars are doing. They're trying to rule as the unconquered sun wants. What does Luna want? And it basically, it started as a religious discussion group for you, so a better term. <laughs> because no one had any idea what Luna wanted. And if you asked her, she'd just play some elaborate practical joke on you. Yeah, I can see that. That's very second edition. Yeah, and it just sort of grew into a political thing when the Solars started going a bit kooky. Yes. Which they did. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, eventually. Um, yeah, the um, the great curse that the Primordials laid on um, the Exalted when they lost the war started to play out. And... Uh, the so the solars start to go nuts, or so so we're told. We don't have a huge amount of objective accounts as to how bad all the depredations of the first age solars were. Slap your tinfoil hats on; it's the SIDS. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, if anyone's going to mastermind a smear campaign like that, it will be the Siderials. Chair job. <laughs> yeah, and there was. I'm sure I remember hearing something somewhere that the Lunars were trying to cook up some way to help balance their mates out and kind of soothe the rages type of thing. It it strikes me as very, very bad, kind of stereotypical, your mate will heal you sort of storytelling. But Second edition doesn't pull into that as much. Second mm. edition basically had that they'd already, within that Shadow Deliberative or Pact, as it was called then, they had already formed political factions, and they were very much divided on what to do about okay. the solar issue. Yeah, those that wanted to help them, for some of them, it was the oh your oh your mate will heal you, but that tends to be the ones that were already romantic with their right. partners. Other ones, the more martial ones, were like no no come on sit him down, slap him in the face, and tell him to get it together, man. It's basically it came to the question of they're like, well, can we save them or do we write them off? Because it does mention. 
that the Lunars, for various reasons, had a little bit of advance warning on the usurpation. Partly because it started out with one Red Wedding-style big Great Hall Massacre thing, but um, and there was one Lunar who got away, but also the... The Siderials were divided about whether or not to get the Lunars on board, because the Lunars were divided on whether or not they were on board with the Solars. So there was a point where some shady-looking monk fellow approaches a Lunar and says, Hey, you, you want to you wanna stab Caesar? <laughs> and it's loosely implied that they might have put the idea of write the Solars off in their heads. Okay. But... Yeah, the they were divided on it. It's some of them thought they could save the solars. Some of them thought, nope, they're gone. Time for age two. Uh, some of them thought, I'm busy fighting fairies at the border. I don't have time for your politics. <laughs> yep, that's fair enough. But yeah, that 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 happens. The solars get kicked to the curb by the dragon blood and and the siderials, and the lunars do as well. Kind of as a res- less le- less less so they. Um, the there's um third edition, basically, it it go it goes in several different directions. Um, you, out yeah. of the ashes of the um of the government by governed by so- the Solar Exalted, you have the Dragon Blooded Shogunate, who which which rises up, and the Lunars that were around at the time absolutely viewed this as illegitimate and something mm. that was. Um, something that should that should not be, and so burning hatred for all involved in establishing it, and because of that um, kind of ambivalence towards the solars and what, um, and it's not necessary. Um, in previous editions, it has been very much, oh no, we want the solars back. In third, it's been much more, we were betrayed. We the lunars were betrayed by the dragon blooded, and um, so there's that there's that sense of kind of lo- um, betrayal, and so after that point and the usurpation, the Lunars retreat and start fighting the Long War, um, in essence. Yes, the... Again, this, this is the awkward thing. This history, because the history is the biggest point, this is going to be a lot of, there's the third story, here's the second. Yep. The second specifically says the way that they got away from the usurpation, as mentioned, those forewarning, but also this beautiful story of one of the Lunar mates of one of the Solars in that first hall where the first stri- strike was given ran away, climbed up a mountain, uh, and she was a sorcerer. She was using, as they put it, communication sorceries, uh, quote-unquote, to try and tell the rest of the Lunars and all the Silver Pact, the dragons are betrayed, Order 66 has been called, uh, run for the hills, and that's why so many Lunars sort of made it, because there were some that stayed behind to try and fight for their mates, some didn't. Across the Shogunate, the Pact was basically being chased. Because yes. it's only during the Shogunate that they realise the only place they can't see us is the wild. Uh, so the Shogunate is characterised by constant war with the Lunars and the Dragonbloods. Because they... yeah. And it's a war the Lunars are losing. We'll cover this more in the Dragonblood episode. The Shogunate is kind of, up until one big event, a very glorious era for the dragons. Things work well for them then. <laughs> yeah, and that and that big that big event is the Great Contagion, which is relevant to the Lunars because it's kind of their comeback gig. Um, the Great Contagion was a disease cooked up by a Death Lord, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a Death Lord and demon working in some arrangement. I can't remember who made it and who spread it, but yep, um, it was it was a disease which spread right right the way across creation, wiped out about nine tenths of people. 
Um, that's a that's a, I think that's a figure from second edition or thereabouts. Mm. And and once that had ravaged everyone, and basically, um, it's also it was implied as something that affected the exalted. Normally speaking, the exalted are immune to most forms of disease, or at least suffer very very minor versions of them. The Great Contagion um, could kill exalted quite as easily as it could kill normal mortals. Yeah, because it's. Mm. Because it's a magical disease, yeah. because it's made by... I'm pretty sure, in fact, yeah, it was cooked up by a demon and the Death Lord let it... Look. No, yeah. no, no. No, it was it was a Death Lord thing, but it was taught by a demon because this is what got one of the Death Lords removed from the picture mm-hmm. because they did something too early because it only killed nine-tenths of the population <laughs> instead of killing everyone. And in the, in the wake of that nine-tenth of the population um, being wiped out... Then the Fair Folk invade. That's that's your Balorian Crusade. So not only do you have the population being wiped out, creation starts to shrink. Um, so you have a shogunate increasingly tr- um, kind of trying to fight fight fires against every in si- every single front possible, um, and kind of encroaching hordes of Fair Folk. So you've got hordes and hordes of infinitely changing beasties um, bearing down on everyone, and really, really about to pretty much wipe out most of creation the implication is that and then then you have um a single dragon-blooded officer who makes it through the first age wonder that is called the realm defense grid yeah it's um it's 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 a giant satellite nuke array yeah with with a term like that you really can't think of it as anything else who then kind of switches it on uses it to obliterate all of the um the fair folk armies push the fair folk back and then transmits an image of herself as a saviour to everywhere she can reach. And Is that in third as well? Yes. I know it's in second that she does the massive face appearing above the mountain stick. I thought um, we got rid of it in third. It's not a it doesn't it's not a big face appearing above the mountain. It's lots and lots of smaller things getting broadcast. Ah. There's a beautiful picture in the th- in the um I want to say it's either what fire has wrought or airs to the shogunate, um, but it mm. shows kind of um, like what must be an 8 to 12 foot high image of the empress that's translucent in a village. This is the empress, by the way. She was nobody before she uh, before she became the literal ruler of the world. Yeah, this is, this is the Scarlet Empress who was a lowly dragon-blooded officer before this point. And so that, and that was the birth of the realm. Um, and so yeah. everything sort of stabilizes at that at the... that point ish in terms in terms of creation versus the wild. Yeah. In terms of the lunars, at the fight the fight against the realm is sort of an extension of the fight against the shogunate because they're both illegitimate dragon blooded successor states basically. It's, yeah, it's second versus same as the first for them. They also take issue with the empress's claim that I oh, yes I stopped the crusade uh, because. Basically, when the Dragonbloods were being beaten back and so couldn't spend all their time wild hunting them, some Lunars were content to just sit back and let the fairies eat them, but a good number were just like, no, 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 our role is to protect creation. We are, second edition really likes making them all the eco guys as mm-hmm. the uh, wardens of Gaia and all of that stuff. Our job is to protect creation, fairies are hostile to it. They were very involved in the Balorian Crusade, and the realm just does not tell you about that. No. Um, they were very good at it, because as we mentioned before, they're custom-built for hunting fairies. Yep, and around about this sort of time, um, 
either as the realm settles down or as the shogunate happens, that's when the reforging of the, of the lunar casts happens, where they go from five casts to three. Third has it that this is to reflect changing realities and what the lunars are facing better. Second basically says that the the three casts that became Changing Moon got collapsed down into one entirely because when you're when the only people that you talk to are, are, are fairies, you don't need that many different flavors of socialite. Mm, no, that makes sense. So they collapse them down to give them more mm. range of power. Yep. And one other thing to bear in mind at this point is that there are lunars within modern current lunar society that remember various stages of this. There's at least two of them that were alive in it. Yeah. Because um, exaltation, um, or celestial exaltation at least, seems to grant functional immortality. It, if they can, if they do give numbers. Oh, okay. Uh, at least, at least second did, because second liked giving numbers. Yeah, at least second did, because it's. Uh, I want to say, basically, sidereals live longer than everyone else. Yes. Um, solars and lunars last about two or three thousand years, whereas sids can go for up to five thousand. Uh, because they're basically it's the line of there are no solars or lunars around who were around for the divine revolution there is one sid who was around for that yes and bearing it bearing that in mind there are lunars that remember the whole of the usurpation uh, you've got leviathan who is um currently currently hanging out in the western ocean basically the for him the the usurpation basically broke any sort of hope that he had for a good long while so he went and was moody for several hundred years in a, in a trench he was their greatest naval commander he in fact they do make a point of like saying that he was heralded as an amazing warrior and then he just went to sulk in a trench for a couple of centuries um which some people have not forgiven him for no in modern lunar politics uh you've got raxi who was potentially the one behind the we have to unpack her here. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. She is the she is the baby cannibalizing sexy sixteen year old. Yes. And there's, there's, you can't you can't brush over that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the big things about lunas in general is the whole kind of savage image in inverted commas. Uh, in previous editions, Raxi was absolutely that she was quite deliberately written as something that was grotesque transgressing norms and all sorts and all all, all the while while being a um in the appearance of an attractive 16 year old raxi's portrayal is problematic to say the least in how it's been put across third has made some attempts to fix her if i can put it that way um she's still um she still will invite you into her domain um, throw a great banquet for you and then eat babies during it. But that's apparently all a show. In third, she is con consciously aware of her public image as something both sought after because she knows a heck of a lot of sorcery and incredibly horrible. Does she have the book in third? Yes. Yes, she has the book. Okay. Um, she has the book of three circles has a vast number of spells in it and things from the first era. It's also the name of the actual published spell supplement, <laughs> which is just wonderful. Yes, it's it that's a that's a nice little nod. It's also it's also a benefit that you can get for a um for a lunar character that at, at some point or another you can have looked at the book of three circles and you can therefore at some point or a certain number of times per story um cast spells that you don't know. 
Or at least that that might that might be Raxi specific because Raxi does have a full write up. Yeah, I don't know. The interesting thing with Raxi's whole oh, it's all a show she knows and it's her reputation. That's the trick so good they used it twice. Oh. Because they did it for Mahasuchi as well. Right. Because they said that mm. his whole savage border of skulls kill everyone thing is something that he's deliberately cultivated in the third age because he's tired of dragons invading his turf. At uh, second age, sorry. Mm. Because he's tired of dragons invading his turf. Whereas before he's been the gentle socialite and the kind ruler or the general or whatever. That he, his cast, he is a changing moon. He's not a full moon. He is, he is a talker and he cultivates his self-image as to whatever he needs right now. Yes. Leviathan, Raxi, and Mahasuchi are the three that are most defined by the usurpation. Mahasuchi is um, very, very determined to present a united front against the realm and basically, basically for, for a lot of his history, he's wanted to invade the Blessed Isle and kill everyone. Um, he's been... He's been the one uh, that is most forthright in that um, in that idea. There was a point where he and Raxi agreed on that, um, but they had a f they had a falling out um, sometime during the Shogunate era. Uh, they were both hanging out in Raxi's city, but they had a, a, a an argument that turned violent, leveled a good portion of the city, um, and as you do, as as you do, I mean. I mean, it's, that's that's another thing about that place. There is actual art in the third edition Lunar book that um, it literally looks like skyscrapers in the place. Yeah, that's about right. So yeah, um, but that, um, so it's it's kind of setting it up as modern modern convenience that then got levelled as these two titans laid into each other, and then Mahasuchi headed south to set up the Nameless Lair. He basically um, wandered until he found some people that he wanted to be associated with. This is the third edition telling again, because that's where my memory goes. Um, he, he wandered until he found people he wanted to be with. They didn't want him to start with. So he basically wheedles up to their god, <laughs> who then eventually pronounces him to be her emissary. And so they accept him as an equal to their um, to their priest caste, <laughs> and then eventually yeah. as someone powerful to get along with, but never as their actual ruler. He sets himself up in the ruins of, uh, of a first age city in the southeast and just kind of sits there. I'm pretty certain that at some point in, the, in his history, he will have led armies... Um, out to um, out to try and face the realm. I can't see that he would never have done that. I but yeah. I don't know whether there's anything documented about precisely what those were. Given how recently that he, well, historically speaking, given how recently he went to the Nameless Lair. Yeah. I don't think he's done much there. At least I've done a lot of reading around the scavenger lands, and one assumes he has to go through there to get to them. Yeah. And the general scavenger lands assumption is he's never left. Like, they don't know when he went in there because he went alone, but they know he's not come out. Okay. Because the 7th Legion has that area under watch. <laughs> yep. But, yeah, you have that. Um, you have kind of those three that, that remember the usurpation as it was happening. You've then got a cohort above them that, or cohort that came after them, rather, um, that's kind of the more active elders within lunar society which is basically the the silver pact the silver pact is a very loose confederation of of lunars it's a it's best described as a mutual aid society 
is the way they put yeah. it across. Uh, if if you want if you want sanctuary as a lunar, you find the pact, or the pact will find you, and you will get relocated. The pact will find newly exalted lunars and say, "Do you want the tattoos? We can help you. We can relocate you. We can give you people. We can give you training." The only rank within the pact is that that of Shahanya, which is teacher basically the pact works on a tutelage system that a shahanya will take on students that they think are good enough for them called ufya yes there's there's a lovely little pact lexicon that i can't quite remember um but i only know those two terms (laughs) fair enough um and but because the pact is all nice and mutual aid and democratic and everyone is, in theory, equal, not everyone recognises every Shahanya as a Shahanya. The Leviathan, in particular, is a sticking point for some because he spent so long out of it that some don't want to let him back in now that he's actually wanting to do something again. Yeah, but equally, he like he gets memed as a just grumpy old granddad. And that is accurate to how he acts, but also he has... Frankly, of the old big three, in the modern ages, he's the one that's done the most. He flipped a Pelops warship to try and convince them, no, guys, I'm back, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And he's also spent all of his time building Sunken Luth into a very, very bizarre underground kingdom. Yeah. But, yeah. The, the The guys that came after these are kind of the backbone of the of those Shahanyas who are directing pact policy. The pact will call councils every once in a while and there will be kind of deals cut and hospitality granted and points made, new um people introduced to people um sort of thing. It's it, they're called councils. I I don't know whether summits would be a better term for, or whether that's too modern. But I I kind of envision mm, I, I, I kind of envisioned that kind of the Council of Elrond sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've... I'll openly admit, I've treated the pact in my games as perhaps a bit looser than even the books actually do, insofar as I've basically sort of said that unless there's something cataclysmic, mm. the the councils are themselves local. It's not going to be all the lunars of the world meet up here and do this. No, that's, that, be, that's 100% not practical, so every will be, yeah. they will be local. It's like all of the all of the lunars of the scavenger lands can meet up here, and that'll still be a few because it's the scavenger lands. But although that said, because the elders in lunar society, so to speak, can't always attend, you will have a lot of people sending proxies, people to speak for them. So you yeah. can, in theory, have them covering quite a large area of creation if you're willing to have people speak for you and people that you trust speak for you. Um, there are a bunch of politics within the pact as to what what people think should be done generally speaking pact policy has been that keep your heads down and we will steadily bleed the realm dry and just yes. yeah do do hit hit run live to fight another day um dis- destroy a kingdom here and there um draw the legions out into pl- somewhere where they can't cope with slaughter them when their supply lines are overextended, etc. Your typical guerrilla tactics. That's all kind of standard and has been packed policy for a while. Uh, with the disappearance of the Scarlet Empress, there are louder voices within the pact to say more direct action should be taken in various quarters in, in various ways. Third has actually simplified pact politics quite a bit because it's, it's made them appear a bit more united. Mm-hmm. Second, 
second, straight up, as I sort of mentioned before, it established political factions within the pact. Five of them. And it gave them all cool names, which is the most important part of any exalted thing. <laughs> and they all have cool little names. And they're somewhere between political factions and, like, secret societies that the, the pact as a whole might only meet, like, once every couple of years or so, or, or if something scary happens. Whereas it's implied that these factions in their local branches meet a bit more regularly because they're somewhere between political party and secret society. Because uh, there is the Crossroads Society, who are the uh, necromancer sorcerer people. The Wardens of Gaia, who, because 2nd Edition thought that they were eco-people, were all about that, and they blow up, like, they burn down even new cities being built and stuff like that because they're trying to protect the natural world. The Swords of Luna, who don't care about people, they just want to hunt fairies. Uh, the Winding Path, who are all like, no, 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 we like humans, actually, and build up tribes and stuff like that. And the best name of all, the Seneschals of the Sun Kings, uh, who think that the soul is coming back is good, actually. <laughs> but they were only one party of five and are explicitly said repeatedly to be the smallest. Yes. Um, for what thirds done has replaced that with the generational politics, kind of saying that yeah. the ones that grew up during the Shogunate and tried to fight and failed... Um, and are therefore pursuing that policy of asymmetric warfare and so on. And you've then got cohorts that come after that, and the ones that are the most recent, and generally speaking, this is your way to get your player characters doing more direct, dumb stuff, um, are thinking, the time is now, the, the, emperor, the empress is gone, let's seize the moment, and do things a lot more openly. And that's pretty much the Silver Pact, I think, unless there were any other aspects of it that we wanted to highlight, we've forgotten. We've forgotten to mention Shaoka. Yeah, we'll, well, we'll get to him, but and he's we've forgotten not, to. Okay, we, he's got. Um, he's. Um, we'll, we'll we'll get to him and we'll get to the call. But I just wanted to see if there's anything else we want to talk about with regards to the pact specifically. Not particularly that I can think of. Um, other than the matter of the call, which I think is the only thing left. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about the call. But basically. It's one of the few places where the Lunars have decided, no, it's guerrilla warfare nonsense. No, 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 no. We're doing proper warfare. Yes. Uh, Mostly because they're winning. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. The Call is a mystical continent that almost never was, apparently. Given, given the name, I'm, I'm really suspicious of its origins, which they never actually go into. Um, but... Going from going from the definition of the thing, um, the, a call is a membrane that covers the head and face of a newborn child. So, think think about what that means with regards to a landmass and with in with regards to Gaia, because the call is said to be a gift between Luna and Gaia, who are explicitly identified as lovers within the setting. Yes. Uh, I, I joked about it in the history about she called her girlfriend in, but Gaia is the only primordial who survived unkilled and un... Imprisoned. The term is actually vivisected. Yeah. That, that's the term for what they did to them that messes them up. Gaia's the only one that's just okay, and she just chills in heaven now uh, with Luna. Yep. But now you've mentioned this, now I'm thinking, because the call was an island... Yes. The, it's got magic powers. The, yes. The call, the call is a strange, dreamy place. We don't know quite what they did, but there was an implication that 
during the first age that the lunars and the dragon blooded strove together to bring this thing into being that it's some kind of dream slash child slash something between luna and gaia it's sacred to the lunars because of that presumably Yes. yes i don't know if it does anything magic for them but for the dragons, it helps them make more dragon-blooded. We'll get into mm-hmm. it in the dragon episode, but the long and short is dragon-bloods don't reincarnate. They have to have kids, and it's not a guarantee that your kid turns into a dragon-blood. They might just be a human. Mm-hmm. The call actually helps that and makes it nearly guaranteed, doesn't it? Uh, I've, I've, it's been a while since I've read that bit of the realm, but... But this is interesting now. Um, I'm thinking, because I didn't know what a call was before, and now I'm, I'm getting... Theories. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I, okay, but the, the, the thing to, the thing to remember for now is that the call disappeared, um, disappeared with people on it. The most important person that disappeared while on it was a lunar called Sha'aoka, who, when the call reappeared and everything sort of settles down, is leading the war effort against the dragon blooded on the call. Um, he's done it very successfully. He's one of the few, apart from Mahasuchi, um, who is directly advocating for a more direct military involvement against uh, against the Dragonblooded. And he's winning, is the thing. The Call has five pilgrim cities established, and the Lunars have taken them all back, apart from one, under Sha'aoka's leadership. He's leading, he's like doing direct things like sieging cities um, and so on and leading the people who who were born in the call and any lunars who will come and join him, which are quite a few because he's winning. And he's also fighting a sacred cause. You as a young lunar have a choice between fight this guerrilla war where you'll be like constantly losing, constantly struggling, having to run, make sure you're not seen, do all of this. Or you can go join this glorious army that's absolutely stomping the realm and has the realm basically desperately clinging to one city so it doesn't get kicked off the entire continent. Yes. I do not envy the people who live in Faxi. I really don't. Uh, the five pilgrim cities, as you sort of mentioned, that's how the helping with dragon blood happens. The belief is... I say belief. The book's really, really flaky on whether it works or not. <laughs> but... The belief is that if you go between the five cities, each of which is elementally attuned to a different elemental dragon, which are parts of Gaia, theory brain going, but if you make a procession, a pilgrimage between all five of them and then get pregnant, your child will be a dragon. And do I remember correctly that there is a truce to allow pilgrims through at the moment? Or is that uh, is that a, is that just a historical thing when relations were slightly I don't better? Know. I'd have I'd have to ch- I'd have to check. Mm. I, I can't imagine that there is because otherwise the realm wouldn't like want to take it as much. Yeah, true. Because this is mm-hmm. the thing about the war for the call. It's very expensive for the realm, but they just they need the foothold at least because yep. if you can get dragons in, they might be able to at least try to make the pilgrimage and try to sneak through to do it. Yes, and Sha'aoka is not telling anyone about what went on while it was disappeared. Um, he will kind of be very very vague about it but um he also kind of treats the treats the, the the wording is treats the call like a sibling in in those terms one of the things that i really like about the call as a thing is that um is that it gets kind of properly mystical in the relations between the lunar lunars and the land 
um, and so on. It's, there's also fragments of it being wild touched and so on. I mean, a large chunk of that is so that you can make more or less any sort of game in the call and you can involve the fair folk if you really want to. Um, there's a whole but, angle with a mystery of what it is that yeah. I'm coming up with about 15 different answers for. <laughs> yeah, I I think this the, we don't we don't want to go in, in, quite into quite into that at this point because this is ex, this is supposed to be explainer. <laughs> so. Yes, there'll be an episode on the call when I've had time to collect my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And start screaming about elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And with that, I think I think we are going to lower the wall and say storytellers only from beyond this point. It will be showing up as a separate episode in your podcast queue. So if you want to ask us any questions about the um, about the setting of Exalted, um, anything that we've mentioned in this episode, do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Aramithius. Uh, Rels is at Razirels. Uh, there are links to all of this in the show notes. And yes, we would absolutely love to go through some of your feedback um, and answer any questions that you've got send me your mad theories on what the call is <laughs> yes absolutely we do need to have that episode now because yeah you've, with some of the things that you've said that that makes so much sense as to as to as to how that works but we can't go into it now um and next time we will be de- talking about the third of the major exalt types uh, we will be discussing the dragon blooded they're a lot easier. <laughs> yes. And if you're leaving us now and um, just along the fluff, thank you ever so much for your time. And we will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramithius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission.